You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 395. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1412 at the Hilton in Daytona Beach. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of October, 2019. Today's episode, an emotional salute to the victims of a B-17 crash. And a freighter from Ukraine crashes after running out of fuel. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, offering Moile Deluge Part 3. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 395 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest aviation news and answering your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff. In my 31st year of flying for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, which I like to call Acme Airlines, and I am joined today by my awesome hosts from her luxury hacienda, again, on the Bay of Biscay, in Spain's mountainous Basque country, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you guys. Hopefully my internet connection will hold out for long enough to me, for me to hang around for just a little bit. I hope so, too. Eh, yeah, okay. So well, hurry, okay? Uh, so let's quickly push this button and then hit this one. From his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, and currently one huge pain in the you-know-what for his amazing wife, Jilly. It's Captain Nick. I heard that this time. Because <laughs> I still have it written a, down. <laughs> got to start taking offense at that. Well, it's great to be back on board your fabulous airline. Looking forward to another great show. Excellent. And... Last but not least, from his studio near the... No, actually, he is in Toronto, Canada. Barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Yeah, great to be back. And I'm in the lovely Liz land, known as Toronto. So I'm uh, looking forward to another fantastic evening show. Excellent, excellent. Okay, let's just dive right into it before Steph's internet connection completely leaves her stranded. And so, let's see, let's stop playing Dana's intro music. Here we go. So, Steph, um, you're only going to be with us for a little while, so we're going to go ahead and do the intro, get uh, caught up with each other segment at the beginning of the show, as we have been doing for so, so long. And uh, so what, what's been happening with you since the last episode? Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. All the things. Yeah, all the things. All the things? Yeah. Yeah. We've been to, 
museums. Oh, hang on a minute, Steph. Did it rain in Spain? Most mainly in the plane. Mainly on the plane? (laughs) No. Oh, okay. We're not on the plane. (laughs) Kind of between sandwich between the mountains and the the ocean. So that's why it rains less. Sorry to interrupt. Sometimes it it rains on my plane, Dana and my plane, <laughs> the air conditioning system. <laughs> yeah, you different, know about that. Regularly. Leaks. <laughs> different plane. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, go ahead. Um, no, it has rained on and off, but today was gorgeous. Um, probably mid, upper 60s. And we took a trip over to France, to Biarritz and Saint-Jean-de-Luz, and walked around a whole bunch, ate some good French foods, and, you know, enjoyed cute little French uh, town. It was nice. Um, yesterday, uh, let's see, took a, a bus and then a small boat over to a nearby town and went to a restaurant where they allowed us to prepare the Basque tapas in-house, like in a working restaurant. So my job was to clean the fish and the squid, which I have not really ever done before, but I learned a whole lot. So that was fun. Um, it was fun pulling the squid guts out and kind of mm. squid up into little calamari pieces. That does Great. sound like fun. And um, yeah, lots of stuff like that. So different museums, different small towns. We've been to a nearby uh, vineyard for Chocoli, which is a white wine produced in the in the region. And tour of that. So good stuff. Sounds like good food, good uh, drink. Good food, good wine. Yeah. Excellent. Good friends. Been fun. All right. So, wow. Okay. I guess that's pretty much all you can say because it hasn't been like you've been at home. You've been gone all this time. Yeah. How long uh, f- f- total will it be? About 10 days? Mm, Something like that? Let's see. I left last Wednesday. Yeah. Got here on Thursday, and today is Thursday. Yeah, so about a week. And I'm leaving tomorrow, mm-hmm. but I'm not going home tomorrow. I have to go to Chicago. Oh, of course There's not. More there's a small go? event happening in Chicago to, on Sunday. Ah, yes. The Chicago Marathon. Indeed. Awesome. Indeed. I'll be home on Tuesday. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And I did not, um, when I checked the forecast two weeks ago, now certainly it can be, you know, almost anything in Chicago two weeks out. Um, but I did not anticipate that it's going to be uh, wind chills in the upper 20s on Saturday morning. Yikes. I'm going to be shopping for some warm clothes and gloves and a hat. Yeah. I did not bring that with me. Wow. But that sounds okay. like fun. Purchased, purchased some wine here. So I'm going to send that home, pack a different suitcase, put a bunch of stuff that I don't need for Chicago in there. And then I'll have more room in my suitcase for stuff from Chicago. That's good. That's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, good to uh, hear from you and glad uh, that you're having a wonderful time over there. Hey, yeah, Jeff. It's been, it's been great. Mm-hmm. I just have to comment that you and I both travel for a living, and Dr. Steph is gone far more than we are, and we work in, in the business. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. She is yeah, a crazy I, I work. I work to travel instead of travel for work. Yeah. Difference. Yeah. 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 So you and I are like com- completely polar opposites. The last thing I want to see on my days off is in the airport or an airplane. airplane. Yeah. yeah. I want to see my own bed and stay in my own house. See, but my, my version of uh, traveling is a lot easier because what I'm going to do on the plane tomorrow is sleep the entire time. That's what we do too. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's like time travel. <laughs> you get on the plane, you wake up somewhere different, different time zone. It's great. See, and you're, you're fly, are you flying back business class as you flew over? Yes. 
All right, so that, to me, that would be a waste sleeping because, you know, why not take advantage of everything business class has to offer? Like all those really great drinks, great wines, even great beer, I imagine. Cause yeah, but a great lay flat bed. She's going to take great, advantage of that. Yeah, yeah I know. Lay flat bed. Mm-hmm. Movies. I masks. That's great. That's right. You, that's right. That's why. That's where the difference is. You can actually lay flat in those lay flat seats. I can't. I have plenty of space to relax. They'll be good. Maybe I should take up running, then I could be skinny again. There you go. I can sign yeah. you up for next year. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's joking. We're always taking volunteers. <laughs> yeah, there, there's somebody else that we are very, very close friends with that's taking up running, and he's doing a fantastic job. But that's not my cup yes. of tea. No. Yes, he is. Mine Looking forward either. to seeing him this weekend too. Yes, so, is he going to be running in the uh, the big race in Chicago as well? Yes, he is. Oh, all right. Mike. Nice. Mike Carroll's, yep. Yeah, flying in life. Very proud of him. Putting in the effort and, and work because it's a lot to get to this point. Yeah. Must be. I don't know. I wouldn't know. Um, all right. And then, Captain Nick, you're going to be uh, running in a marathon soon, I, I hear? Oh, um, two, yeah. if not three um, next month, and then about half a dozen are over Christmas. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Me too. All in my mind. Yes. <laughs> How have I'll you certainly been, be uh, trying to follow staff around using the internet. That'll be great. Yeah. Uh, that'll make me very fit. That wears me out, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that. You can follow along on the app. There you go. That's what I intend oh. to do. Okay. Uh, Captain Nick, how have you been? Uh, uh, excellent. Uh, last show was uh, fun. I enjoyed that very much indeed. Uh, since then, I've been up to the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society at uh, MOD, what used to be RAF Boscombe Down, uh, where it's the home of the Empire Test Pilot School, and I lectured to the Royal Aeronautical Society there. Um, different audience than I would normally have chatted to, which in most uh, branches of the Royal Aeronautical Society, their enthusiasts, uh, some people from uh, an aeronautical background, but at Boscombe Down, the audience was stuffed full of uh, test pilots and test engineers and highly qualified pilots, more highly qualified than I am, that is for sure. So that was quite a different audience. And uh, I must have, I found it a little bit um, intimidating. That would be a, a good word for it. But I managed to get through, and everyone was very polite. So uh, I think they're just feeling sorry for me. Um, <laughs> oh, so, look at this poor chap up here. Let's yeah, act like we're listening intently. <laughs> but, I mean, to be fair, most of them have uh, had very extensive uh, Air Force backgrounds. So I, I was like preaching to the choir. But that yeah. was fine. Um, I... The only other thing I've really done this week is to put out a handful of plain tales. So thanks very much for making those available uh, to us, Jeff. And uh, so there are several now uh, in the RSS feed that should be coming through to your podcast uh, apps. And uh, you are welcome to listen to those. I've still got the first couple of uh, the current uh now, we, we were discussing it. it. It was not a trilogy. It was a quadrilogy or something. Weren't we yeah, talking about that? that was one of the words we came up with. Uh, quadruplet yeah. is another. or A, a quadruplet of uh, podcast. Anyway, yeah. the current subject. But uh, whilst I was reviewing uh, the ones I put up, I did notice that uh, on the plain tail, uh, I just uh, put up yesterday or today, 
mm-hmm. which is called Still Waiting for Help, Still Praying. Um, I made a slight error. Now, I've, I usually get a whole bunch of emails whenever I make uh, a slight technical error in these. And considering how fast I put them out, it's hardly surprising there are a few uh, little glitches. And, of course, I'm only aiming for 50% because that's pretty good for us, isn't that? Yeah. So, anyway, you'll notice that I uh, gave the uh, B24 Liberator only two engines. Uh, we all, of course, know it only has one. I am sorry. It has four. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I mentioned the bit on the uh, where the pilot's sitting on the runway and he powered up uh, his uh, wasp his... engines and his two wasp engines. Oh. And it should have been four. So I didn't. Catch my that. apologies to all the uh, the geeks out there who go, "Oh my lord, what a dreadful thing to say!" So uh, yeah, my obviously point. it offended. Uh, staff because she just left <laughs> so i know she's already got fed up with it <laughs> bye staff bye staff good seeing you <laughs> exactly so that's been my week and uh not much else going on thanks very much okay very good um let's see i'm getting something from steph but um it's not her video it just says devices not connected <laughs> so i'll wait till i see something that i can put on the screen and then i'll click on it in the meantime, she'll stay backstage. Maybe she can still hear us, though. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, I'll just quickly tell you what I've been up to. Not a heck of a lot. Uh, just this three-day trip. And uh, left uh, yesterday on it. And uh, had a little minor reroute. We were supposed to be in Memphis uh, yesterday afternoon and evening. And we ended up uh, in Augusta, Georgia instead. Uh, which actually worked out, I think, a little bit better. Uh, We got in a little bit earlier than we would have in Memphis, and uh, it's a shorter flight, and uh, the weather was good in both places, and I didn't have anything planned in Memphis, so it worked out. Um, Left there this morning and um, went to Atlanta, and then here, Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, where it's kind of off and on light rain outside. Not Not a super great day, but that's okay. I'm not out there anyway, so doesn't matter really and uh i don't think i have anything planned uh let's see next week let me look at the airlinepilotguy.com website where we have our airline uh apg community calendar and uh, take a look and see what i'm doing next week oh looks like steph's back here there she is Hey, <laughs> she looks very happy. <laughs> Not. <laughs> I've seen that look before. Um, so looking at the calendar next week, I uh, fly another Wednesday, Thursday, Friday trip. I'll be in Louisville for both days. Might still have some sort of a meetup there, depending upon which day we decide we're going to be doing our show recording. And uh, if there are no conflicts on one of those days, either Thursday, I'm mean, sorry, Wednesday or Thursday, of next week, we'll most likely have some sort of a a meetup. And so stay tuned for that. Look at the calendar and uh, join Slack. And this weekend, Nick, is a uh, Grand Prix race in Japan. That should be interesting. Uh, Yeah, particularly since uh, that uh, super typhoon is headed their way. Oh, that'll be very uh, interesting. They've already canceled uh, the England uh, rugby match because they're concerned about the safety of the players and crowds. Uh, So I don't know what they're going to do about the uh, Grand Prix. That could be 
uh, a washout. Where is the England rugby match? Uh, in a rugby stadium, usually. Yeah, but in Japan? <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. The whole, it's the World Cup. It's the Rugby World Cup oh, being held in Japan. Gotcha. Okay. So, so I don't uh, know that much about it, obviously. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, we, we, we quite understand. This is like um, American football, uh, but played by proper players. Well, I know what don't... rugby is, but <laughs> I don't follow it. <laughs> Thank you very much, though. They don't very wear helpful. suits of armor. Yes, I understand. I know. Okay. Well, isn't uh, the Olympics coming going to Japan this year as well? I don't know. Just, I thought they were going to the Summer Olympics coming to Japan. It might be. I don't know. I, I don't. I somebody, can't remember. I have to look that one can, up. Uh, we, we may not be 50% anymore. Somebody bing it or you Google it and uh, we'll find out. Yeah. Well, luckily, it's a non-aviation subject, so it doesn't count. Uh, That's right. really doesn't count. That's against our 50%. I just, you know, the World Cup with rugby and then, you know, Summer Olympics coming up this year, so. That's all the Olympics at uh, Tokyo 2020, so it's yep. next year. There you go. Yeah. Big events going on there. In yeah. Japan. Yes, absolutely. So, yep, uh, Owen says Olympics Tokyo 2020. There you go. Okay. Um, so it looks like Steph is going to give up. Steph, we are directing you to stay off of the show and start packing for your trip in so you can get a good night's sleep tonight for your travels tomorrow. But Steph, just go ahead and have some more of that really good wine. That's another And then start packing. Or pack and then do the wine. (laughs) That's why half my clothes are scattered around the uh, globe. (laughs) I've made donations to all the major hotels in most uh, cities we flew to. All right. She said she's going to attempt it one more time just so she can say goodbye to everybody. So, okay. Uh, So that's pretty much uh, my boring life. And... Um, let's see, Dana, while we wait for Steph to come back on with us, why don't you kind of get us up to date? You kind of had a brief, um, what, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a brief time, I'm a all brief appearance, there we go, with us on the last episode. And, uh, it was right after your check ride. And so you kind of filled us in on all that. What else has been going on, sir? Well, uh, just, um, Arrived here in Toronto last night. Kind of interesting. Uh, coming into uh, Toronto, I, I got a message from dispatch on my flight release uh, coming in here that we need to leave early because the curfew at the airport is at 0030 local time. Uh, and when they shut down this airport, they shut down the airport. There is no exemptions at all. So we were scheduled to be in at 0029. So talking about cutting it close. Fortunately, we... Uh, pushed back off the gate a few minutes early, flew the aircraft as uh, sprightly as a MD-88 will fly through the sky, uh, and uh, we landed with about 10 minutes roughly to spare, so we didn't need to go to our alternate airport of um, of Buffalo is what we had. So, uh, so no, sorry, Buffalo. I didn't get to say hello. However, uh, we got here last night really late, and it uh, was uh, pretty much a breeze coming in almost. I think we're number one for the airport. Uh, about 40, 50 miles out. So it was it was uh, quite a nice operation coming in here last night. Uh, yesterday was my first day of my four-day trip. Uh, I had a round trip to GSP, Greenville Spottenberg, um, and flying with a FO who actually is listening to us uh, on YouTube at this time. He says hello, and his name is Chris. Hi, Chris. Uh, glad to have you uh, listen to us. But some of the things that leading up to my uh, check ride that had really were preparation 
preparational uh, things that happened on the line, uh, unusual things that uh, I experienced up to my check ride is uh, I had a false wind shear, as Jeff and I were talking about earlier. It turned out to be a false wind shear, but at the time when it's clear in a million and uh, you're climbing out of uh, Atlanta at about 4,000 feet with not a cloud in the sky, all of a sudden you hear wind shear, wind shear, wind shear. Kind of makes the hands here on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. So initially, looking at what the airplane was doing, I was already hand flying the aircraft. No loss of performance. So ultimately, it was a computer glitch. Never even got the guidance for the wind shear other than just the three wind shear calls. So that was quite interesting. Of course, that was one of the uh, things in the check ride that we had to uh, uh, deal with. Uh, EGT overtemp during an engine start. Um, maximum EGT temperature on a or exact exhaust gas temperature is 500 degrees on the 88. And it it rapidly rose. I mean, it wasn't uh, sneaking up to the temperature. It rapidly rose above 500 so, so fast that the FO couldn't do anything else. Um, but uh, it just snuck up there. So we went ahead and secured that engine, had to go back to the gate, go through some paperwork, unfortunately, for five degrees above it. No big deal. And then going into Omaha, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, on final approach. And the if you look at the airport diagram, the I forget which, do you, Jeff, do you remember what river that is? It goes right around the airport in uh, Omaha. Where, what, Omaha, Omaha that's Nebraska. The, uh, that's the Missouri River. Is it the Missouri? Okay, the Missouri River, it's almost like wraps around like in a half moon shape into the airport. And they had reported that they had uh, a flock of, uh, a couple of flocks of geese uh, flying around the airport. And just as we were coming over the river where they reported them, roughly 300 feet above the ground, saw the entire flock. Uh, more than 100 birds were in that flock. It was, or, or at least what I can estimate. So they saw us, we saw them. I pushed the nose of the aircraft over, even though we're only 300 feet above the ground, got below them. And um, it was uh, it was quite interesting to see how close we got to them, but fortunately we didn't have any uh, event with that. But with that, I had the two other bird events that exact same trip where I hit two birds on top of the geese. So not on the geese or around the geese, but on, on separate legs. So it's quite a... a, a, a uh, uh. For the moment, moment there, I thought we were going to see the only bird strike of one bird riding another one. That would have been uh, that would have made history. That would have. Yeah, <laughs> that would have. I was trying to go down that road, but not quite. But anyways, it's it's, it's been uh, since the last time I was really on. Uh, that's uh, kind of the highlights of what I have had going going on. Of course, everybody heard last week that the check ride, my FAA check ride, actually turned out to be that I that my first officer and I was so well prepared that the and the uh, examiner that was giving us the uh, author, uh, authorized designee, pilot designee, examiner, I think, uh, APD, whatever it means, um, was thrilled that he had us as a crew because we were so prepared that it was there's was no gray area so you know if he had to make a decision the fa would, would be really watching if he had to make a gray area decision like give somebody the benefit of the doubt but we we both did such a great job that there was no benefit of the doubt that he just had had said you guys pass it's great and uh, so he likes either one end of the spectrum or the other that's either do a really good job or just fail miserably so he doesn't have to get into that gray area so Anyways, uh, that was my check ride and made through uh, with flying colors, and I'm happy to be back here on the show to talk about it. Yeah, we're happy that you're back with us. Oh, and um, so Oshkosh in July, uh, Dana uh, had purchased some very nice alcohol, 
and uh, mm-hmm. had it available or, or, or was that, were those gifts or were the, was that something that you purchased? I don't remember. I spent a lot of money on that, those two bottles. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I wanted them back. <laughs> so I, because um, he didn't want to go through the hassle of checking baggage, I guess, um, going back home to Atlanta, you uh, just had me take it uh, in the RV and then in my vehicle all the way back home. And I've had it at my house for a few months now. And he was uh, wondering if it was still in liquid form and hasn't, uh, you know, evaporated. And uh, I assured him it had not because I don't really like scotch nor what was the other one? Scotch and uh, scotch and bourbon. bourbon. Uh, uh, bottle, I don't mind uh, bourbon. Bottle Liz, the, the, well, it's actually a Canadian whiskey with a, a bourbon mash. That's the bottle that Liz okay. is nice enough to bring me to Oshkosh. Oh, OK. So, OK. One was purchased and one was not. OK. Um doesn't matter though, does it? Um, and uh, also, uh, when we saw um, David Ogden in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, or I did, uh, he brought me some beer, some um, golden ale, I believe, or blonde yes. ale. And uh, so he said, you, you need to be sure that uh, Dana gets at least one of these. And I actually gave Dana half of the six packs, three of them, along with his other uh, alcohol. So we did that. We got together in uh, kind of a a middle spot from where he lives in the Atlanta area and where I live in the the Atlanta area and went to a really nice Korean barbecue restaurant called Iron Age and uh, had a great lunch and uh, enjoyed uh, spending time with each other. So that was a lot of fun. That was on... um, I forgot to mention that. That should have been part of part of my week. I'd already forgotten that we'd gotten together, and that was what on. Uh, it was that memorable, Jeff. I, mean, Monday, I guess it was. was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was actually. You know, it's one of the com- things we were commenting on. We we live so close to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we do this more often? Why don't we get together for lunch or or whatever else to commiserate, oh, shoot. And talk, and <laughs> I just remembered. I'm thinking. Seems like I've been doing more than just what I described in my little segment. But uh, I, in fact, I mentioned this on the last show that uh, the next morning, because we recorded what, Friday night, the next morning I was heading to the airport and flying up to Baltimore to attend uh, the come fly away or something like that, uh, come get away or whatever. Sorry. Um, uh, Sorry about that, sir. Um, Not being able to remember now I can't even remember his name, <laughs> Captain Cool, William Cool, um, his party, uh, aviation themed party. So I uh, was able to join um, Will and his wife Susie, and got to meet a lot of uh, other great people up there, including somebody that everybody knows here in the APG community, Hillel. Um, Hillel. What? <laughs> yeah, never mind. Just stay in there until the end of the show, please. Anyway, uh, got to meet uh, Hillel and his uh, lovely wife, Jeannie. They picked me up from the hotel uh, near the airport in Baltimore and drove me over to the party, and we had a great time. So, Oh, it was a great party, by the way. He had um, an a cappella group of uh, singers called America's Sweethearts, I believe, and I think it's a rotating um, group of uh, three very uh, wonderfully voiced um and, and attractive ladies that uh, get together for these sorts of things and sing acapella uh, stuff like um, uh, the, uh, what is that uh, one that uh, they always like to sing about the uh, bugle boy of Company B and that sort of thing. Um, it was a nice, about an hour long concert in the living room of Captain Cool's 
house. So never experienced that kind of an intimate performance. How cool is that? Yeah, it was awesome. And he, it's awesome. He, uh, they, they are in the uh, New York City area, and they drove down from New York City to Baltimore and uh, performed. And then I don't know if they spent the night or drove back that night. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, great time. So thank you, Will. Uh, and Susie for inviting me to the party. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's what I did on the weekend. I was thinking, why didn't I get together with uh, with you, Dana, on Sunday when you were a little bit closer to me uh, at that uh, tavern that you'd like to go to watch the uh, Patriots game? Is because I'd just returned that morning and had a busy day at church and, and uh, didn't really feel like I had the time to go and, and meet up with you. Plus, I don't know if I want to meet up with a bunch of patriots who have been drinking vast quantities of alcohol on a Sunday. Yeah, afternoon. well, you know, we have to we have to have something to celebrate, right? So, I might as well celebrate over a bottle of something. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, uh, is that uh, the game tonight? The Patriots? Uh, they're playing yeah, the Giants. We're, we're, I'll, I'll I'll lean back a little bit. Uh-huh. There it is. That's going to be a tough patriots. game, huh? That's going to be a, yeah. It's actually playing against our our arch enemy, our rival that keeps on. Some, finding some way to always beat us. I have no idea why, but the New York Giants were playing them this evening. So looking forward to that after the show. Um, I'm going to try to watch most of the game, but early wake up tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it should be good. All right. uh, you know, Jeff, I must mention one thing. Yes. You know me. I like to watch. I don't normally chat a whole lot in the chat room, but I do watch the chat room. Uh-huh. And this is almost like sensory overload right now because now we have two streams of information coming in. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I, I just, uh, I can't believe this. One of my longest friends that I've known. How long is he? I, I, this is a family show. <laughs> well, you said one of your longest I, one friends. Of friend, one of my friends <laughs> I've known since uh, at least high school. Uh-huh. Uh, I just found out right now that he's been watching our show for a long time. Really? Yeah, he just commented on the fact he really likes my hat, my flat hat. Oh, my nice. Cap. And his, my, my name is Craig, and I have to have a shout-out to him because I I didn't realize he was watching the show. He says, yeah, I watch it always because he commented on the hat, and then he commented on the fact that my bed's not made. Well, I said it is made. That's at least the way I may, would make a bed after I slept in it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Looks better than I, what it would have looked like if I had slept in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's don't go there. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say something. I just stopped uh, myself. You know me. I I, I uh, have a tendency of saying things, but I'm trying to be more reserved. Show. <laughs> there, just play this again so we can hear it on the uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Yes. Okay. I, I, I can only I can only say it because I've been there. I know it, and <laughs> I've seen it. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's probably all we should. Um. Yeah, get your head out of the gutter. No, it was Miami. Not talking about that. Or yeah, wherever. Miami, we, sh- we shared a room. Yeah. And normally it's my wife wearing the earplugs, and it actually was me wearing the earplugs. Oh, uh, I told you, I snore. I <laughs> That's we okay. All, we all I snore, snore I like think. a baby. <laughs> we, were pro- we, were, we were probably having snoring battles that we didn't even know about. Probably so. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Looks like. The attempt from Stephanie to rejoin us and say goodbye did not work. It was not successful. So anyway, if you can still hear us, Steph, uh, goodbye from everybody here on uh, the show. 
And we uh, look forward to, oh, she's in the chat room there, so she's still kind of here. Uh, we, we look forward to seeing you next week, hopefully. We'll see how that works out. And uh, good luck with the, the travels and also good luck with your marathon run this uh, upcoming weekend. And with that, let's quickly knock out the coffee fund, if you don't mind, even though new, uh, Nick wants to go directly to news. Is it okay if I do the coffee fund first, though? Nick? <laughs> no, I was just suggesting we move on. The news or the coffee fun, either would be fun. Okay, then let's do it. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yes, the Coffee Fund, your way, dear listener, to help us uh, support the show financially, uh, for those of you who can afford to do that. And we do have, fortunately, several of you that do, and we do appreciate it. And since the last episode, uh, two ways to do it. One way is the PayPal Classic or the Coffee Fund Classic method via PayPal. Uh, where you can make a one-time or recurring payment or contribution, a recurring contribution from George Leslie and a contribution from Nick Arender, uh, or Arander, I'm not sure how you pronounce your last name, sir, uh, did that, the uh, PayPal classic method, the Coffee Fund classic method. Uh, the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last show, we have a new producer, yay, Aaron P. Murray has joined this great group of folks, the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club or whatever the heck you want to call it. So if you want to learn more about how you can join this great group, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Stand by for news. Okay, the last episode we talked about this in depth, the uh, tragic crash of the B-17 at Bradley International Airport, Windsor Locks, Connecticut, and saw this on YouTube and, um, and on Twitter, and I thought this would be something that would be nice to share with our group, our community, if you haven't already heard slash seen this. Uh, this was on... Um, VAS Aviation, VAS Aviation, uh, Real ATC, and this involves another uh, group of pilots from the Collins Foundation, the ones that fly the B-25, and they were leaving Bradley International Airport, and here's a little audio of that. Bradley Tower, Mitchell, 3476 Golf, Golf, holding short runway 6, ready for departure, we're going to need... Uh... About 30 seconds on the runway after we get in the position. 
Mitchell, 3476 Golf, Bradley Tower, 1040 at 5, runway 6, turn right hitting 09 or 5, cleared for takeoff, delay on the runway is approved. Cleared for takeoff, runway 6, heading 095 on departure, 3476 Golf. Hey, uh, Tower, uh, B25, uh, any chance to take a second and say something? Go ahead. It's difficult, but uh, bear with us. Um, I think from everybody here, our crew, and the entire Conley Foundation, uh, we're uh, very appreciative and deeply sorrow for uh, everything. To all of you here at the airport, to the people of Connecticut, and especially those families that involved in this tragedy this week. On a personal note, and I guess it's even more difficult because we never do it, but... Uh, we got to leave behind two of our friends, Mac and Mike, and uh, our brothers, our brothers and fellow crew. Also, uh, a salute to uh, our good old friend, the 909. Calling Stanley to be 25 is ready for departure. Thank you very much. We'll pass the word along. Runway 6, click for takeoff. Clear to go. Runway 6, 3476 call. Thank you, guys. Safe journeys, guys. Number 7-6, golf on the 0905 heading, contact departure, have a safe journey. 095 heading and over to departure, 3476, golf, take care. You know, that was a, a nice thing to, to be said in a public um, forum, you know, the, the radio frequency there, and um, must be difficult for, for them to have lost, uh, such good friends and, and brothers in arms, uh, flying these vintage airplanes. Yeah. I think it's always tough, uh, tough when you've lost someone close to you. Uh, and particularly when it involves such a, a highly public, uh, event and, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion attached to the flying of these fantastic old aircraft. So I think that just amplifies everything. Very sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's touching. Uh, I just I'm sitting here and I've got tears in my eyes. It's, it's it's very difficult to lose people in the community, especially people that are respected as well as as those as, as people were. Yeah. Um, we received um, some feedback from Matt. I believe Matt Moranto. I'm not sure about that. I don't. I didn't write that down. Matt. Um, he says incredible article written by Tom Richard. Great perspective on the Collins B-17 tragedy. We did talk a little bit about we had hoped that this wouldn't, you know, bring an end to this kind of flying. And, uh, you know, we had a good discussion about that, I believe. And uh, this is some good stuff from uh, a website um, or an article called The Beauty of Flying Vintage Aircraft. And the first thing I'm going to read is from the editor, Richard Mallory Allnett. And he says, as our regular readers are will be well aware, we stood down for several days to reflect upon last Wednesday's tragedy in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. How does one respond to such a moment? For those of us with a passion for flight and especially the continued operation of vintage aircraft, the sudden and very public exposure of what can happen when things go dramatically wrong has obviously raised questions about what the future holds. While safety must be ever paramount. There is 
No such thing as a risk-free life. Anyone wishing for such monotony is condemning themselves, and likely those around them, to a tepid and flavorless existence. Life's roller coaster, after all, is often what inspires us to breathe in more deeply, to dare, to dream, and in so doing reach our full potential. Those of us who reach for the sky do so because flying brings us great joy. It so, it so often frames our lives and brings them real purpose. The aviation world is a small family. Each of us likely knew or knew the name of somebody aboard 909 last week. And whilst we grieve for the brothers and sisters we lost, we must also remember that nothing in life is guaranteed. Along those lines, we thought our readers might want to read this post from the well-regarded and highly experienced pilot, Tom Richard. And I'm just going to read a couple of um, quotes, I guess, from his um letter. The whole thing will be in the show notes if you want to read it. Um, first, One of the first things he says, Benjamin Franklin once said, quote, those who give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. <laughs> and of course, he was talking about the the events that led up to the, uh, uh, the Revolutionary War and, and our um, you know, separation from um, England. And, um, but anyway, uh, another poll quote from this, I'm often asked, this is again, Tom, uh, Richard, I'm often asked, and he flies warbirds if warbirds are safe, but really, how do you think an airplane got to be 75 years old? <laughs> that was a good, that's a good comeback. Are th- is this a safe airplane? Yeah. It's still here. It's 75 years old. Nothing is perfectly safe not even modern airline travel. However, through proper maintenance and training, we can maintain what the FAA calls an acceptable level of safety in vintage aircraft, which is true for any mode of transportation. And then the last thing I'll read from this, more to the point, while no one should be required to fly a 75-year-old airplane, we should certainly have the choice to do so if we wish. And that choice belongs to each of us. At its heart, life is defined by our choices. Some of us choose flying warbirds as part of experiencing our lives at their best. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me that flying a warbird is the greatest thing they've ever done. Others choose to watch from the ground, which has its own set of joys and fulfillment. But for some inexplicable reason, some choose to spend most of their lives flopped on their couch instead of venturing out to experience the great things life has to offer. To each their own. The bottom line, though, is that it's your choice and always should be. So, again, there's more here. That's just a little taste of it. Again, that was uh, Tom Richard. And, again, his uh, the headline here, The Beauty of Flying Vintage Aircraft. So, And that's a great picture of him flying that uh, P-40, isn't that? It is. Big grin on his face. And uh, the gentleman behind him is a... Uh, World War II veteran who flew the, well, I don't know if he flew the P-40 or not. Um, anyway. Wouldn't surprise me, but yeah, that fantastic? So, he's almost looking over his shoulders like, like if he's a, if he doesn't trust the guy in the front you're, seat. You're doing what up there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome picture. You're right, Nick. All right. Well, thank you, Matt, for sending that in. I think Liz was trying to tell me whether or not I got your name right. And, uh, Amaranto. Okay. I thought it was Maranto. Okay. Well, whatever. Thank you, Matt, for sending that in and sharing that with us. And 
what else is there to say for now? Um, I don't think there have been any updates yet on the accident and its cause. Have you heard anything, either of you? No, no but I haven't heard anything negative either, which is, I, for me, a good sign. Okay. Oh, Moranto. Okay, very good. There we go. Let's uh, move on with item B in the news folder. Um, a Ukraine Air Alliance Antonov AN-12 freighter registration uniform Romeo uh, Charlie Alpha Hotel performing flight 4050 from Vigo, Spain to Levue, Ukraine with seven crew and one passenger and a cargo of 10 tons consisting of car parts was an approach to Lviv about 7.4 nautical miles before the airport when the aircraft disappeared from radar. The air, This is, by the way, from the Aviation Herald. The aircraft was subsequently found on the ground about 0.8 nautical miles before runway 31 in soil and vegetation near a soccer stadium and a cemetery where the crew had attempted an emergency landing due to running out of fuel. Five occupants were killed. Three occupants were taken to hospitals with injuries. Ukraine's state emergency services reported the aircraft had disappeared from the radar at blah, 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 blah time. Um, okay. Ukraine's Ministry of Infrastructure reported the aircraft was operated by three crew. Four people were killed in the inc- the accident. Um, the ministry later added that five people were found killed. Three people needed to be extric- uh, extricated and were taken to a hospital. Um, let's see. On the... 5th of October, the European Aviation Safety Agency, we usually just say EASA, revoked the status as authorized third country operator from the airline, effectively disallowing the airline to operate within the airspace of the European Union. And on the 7th of October, Ukraine's Ministry of Transport announced the air operator certificate of the airline Ukraine Air Alliance was terminated, uh, effective October 5th. The ministry wrote, the order was adopted on the basis of a decision of the Standing Commission on the Certification of Operators, Maintenance and Aviation Maintenance Organizations, Aviation Engineering Developers and Manufacturers, Training Flight, Training Facilities in Ukraine, Flight and Technical Personnel. Wow, that's a mouthful. Is that one document? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Anyway, so um, bottom line is there are a lot of... um, Operators out there operating very old cargo aircraft, such as the AN-12. That's almost their airplane of choice because it's uh, it, it ca- carries a lot of cargo. Uh, but a lot of people are saying, especially on the Aviation Herald in the comment section, that a lot of these uh, operations, you know, even though it said in the in the official news that they were carrying ten tons of car parts, uh, most people will admit that uh, there's a lot of smuggling of unlawful, illegal kind of things going on with these sort of operations. And one even pointed to um, a book that was written uh, by Matt Potter called Outlaws Incorporated. And uh, the little blurb about the book here is that uh, uh, these combat-hardened veterans fly giant Soviet-era superplanes which carry a dark secret, 15 tons worth of secret compartments which they'll fill with illicit payloads. Their hidden cargo is virtually impossible to detect. Anyway, so I don't know if there's anything to that or not, but uh, uh, it's in in a way, it's kind of the wild, wild west in certain parts of the world flying these types of airplanes, and not just in Eastern Europe, right? 
I mean, South America and uh, Central America, I think this sort of thing goes on a lot too. Yeah, there's a little bit of it in Africa in certain places as well. Anywhere where there's no proper radar coverage mm-hmm. uh, to track uh, aircraft that aren't authorized flying around, there, a lot of this tends to happen. And that uh, g- going hand in hand with uh, little uh, aviation infrastructure, of course, means that it's a country where there's uh, not a lot of uh, economic development of aviation there. So those sort of countries, uh, yeah, these things uh, can happen whether it be drugs, guns, or more legitimate, but uh, perhaps uh, equally um, uh, illegal uh, items to be flown around, uh, people will obviously take risks. And uh, getting to within half a mile of your runway and running out of fuel, he almost made it, didn't he? Yeah, you're going, well, yeah, what about all the required reserves and alternate fuel? And I think there was yeah. fog on the airport or something at the time and thinking, hello. Yeah. Yeah, overcast 100 of the air. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, they probably don't even have the equipment to fly an approach into that airport. If, even no. if maybe the airport doesn't even have an approach that would go to those minimums. I don't know. Not been there myself, so I can't really say for sure. And it looks no. like uh, when they were coming in, fog at uh, the uh, ceiling was unmeasured at 200. So, yeah, not good. Not, not not a good scenario. Can you uh, imagine certainly. being in that airplane knowing that you're probably going to run out of fuel and you're trying to fly an approach into those yeah. weather conditions? That uh, Well, in, and what's not mentioned here is maybe the aircraft had already tried to shoot the approach could once, be. twice. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, so we don't know that. And uh, obviously they should left some of the cargo behind and take some more fuel. I mean, what's the three most useless things to a pilot? The air above them, the runway behind you, and the fuel you left behind. So... Yeah. Yeah. Sad, sad. Unless sad. you're on fire, then you don't want any fuel. Well, then, yeah. That's that's the only time you don't want to. Yeah, uh, he didn't catch fire, I know. Yes. Yeah, well, there wasn't anything left to burn. <laughs> Apparently Metal there was car no parts fuel. are not going to burn. Yeah, and that was kind yeah. of my point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all on the same page, I think. All right. Well, Wait, mark that down. That's the first one in history. Oh, my kidding. <laughs> Let's move on to something happier and more uplifting. How about? Item C, which uh, is a gentleman in um, the UK. He's called an UK adventurer. Yeah, I'd say so. Flying a uh, gyrocopter around the world. His name is James Ketchell or Ketchell, probably Ketchell, uh, 37 years old. And uh, he is the first person to fly solo around the world in an open cockpit gyrocopter. Uh, he set off in the small aircraft, uh, from Popham airfield in Hampshire on the 31st of March. That's not far from me or too far from me. Oh yeah. You, you live in Hampshire, don't you? I do. Yeah. Uh, the 37 year old from Basingstoke. I remember seeing that, that name on, on several signs. Yeah. Basingstoke's only 30 miles away from me. Okay. He completed the 24,000 mile nautical mile, 175 day journey, on Sunday, this past Sunday, landing in front of hundreds of well-wishers, Mr. Ketchell's Magnum M16C gyrocopter travels at 70 knots with a range of just 700 nautical miles. And oh, that's pretty good, I think. Uh, and it's yeah, cost- that's not a bad range. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a very good range. It just takes forever to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, co- that's like 10 hours of flying. Yeah, so, exactly. Wow. I know. <laughs> 
Uh, let's see. And, and as I mentioned in the in the uh, article, that the uh, cockpit is open to the weather. His journey took him across Europe, Russia, Canada, the U.S., and the Atlantic Ocean, heading to Greenland and Iceland before his final staging post on the Danish Faroe Islands. So it looks like he did a, a northern hemisphere trip around the world. And uh, congratulations to him. You're crazy, man. Uh- <laughs> yeah, he is. It was a stunning achievement, though. Uh, you yeah. look at it. I mean, I don't know how much uh, he wore in the way of warm clothes. He'd need quite a lot, though, because uh, although he's got a windshield there to keep most of the blast off him, he really is open to the elements right down to uh, his backside. Uh, so I don't, know, I don't know how the hell he did that. That was that was brilliant. And I guess that uh, it's a two-place uh, uh, cockpit, and it's pretty much the entire gyrocopter other than the engine and the rotor. Um, but the, occupying the back seat of this gyrocopter appears to be a very large fuel bladder. Is that what that is, you think? I would guess that's where he gets his 700 miles. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if it's uh, if, if it would be pumped or whether he would have to pump it. I hope he would. Uh, it would be automatic. Yeah. He'd be able to feed it, but uh, into the engine. But yeah, that's one. If that's a fuel tank, that's pretty big. I mean, it's it's as big as he is. <laughs> yeah, that be that would be a lot of weight too. Think of that. That would yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, congratulations, James. So just for those who don't know what a gyrocopter is, uh, it's like a helicopter, except that the rotor blade uh, free wheels. It's not driven like a helicopter. So uh, you've got a propeller pushing you forwards. Uh, on the ground, uh, the pilot usually gives the uh, rotor blade a bit of a turn to get it going, or sometimes he can gear it to the engine just to get it sort of uh, t- turning around at a bit of a speed. But then he has to set off down a runway and using his forward speed and the tilt of the rotor blades, he can spin that rotor up until it can support the weight of his aircraft and he can uh, take off. From then on, he flies like a normal sort of helicopter so long as he doesn't try and hover too much because, uh, like I say, there's he can't really hover. There's no power going to that uh, those blades he has to maintain a certain element of forward speed so he's like a helicopter that glides or like a helicopter that's uh, auto rotating all the time right it's so pretty impressive uh, and of course it, it can do quite short takeoff and landings uh, which is quite an advantage i think if uh, you're flying to some of the places he probably had to go to to get that journey done uh, well it's an interesting piece of kit from what i understand they're pretty safe too because they're it's like you can't really stall them is that true i think that would probably be right but i suspect you can get the rotor going too slowly to support you easily in which case your rate of descent is going to become significant and that could spoil your day do you have any uh experience in those dana at all no i'm i'm actually a sane person (laughs) i wouldn't get in that (laughs) i wouldn't get into that this seems like something that steph would do (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's definitely up Steph's Avenue. Or Alex, well, I, sure. I, I, I've watched these live. No, flown anyone. I'd love to. Um, I think this is actually quite an inexpensive uh, way to fly and pretty safe. I think. I think the accident record for gyrocopters is pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Until you, you know, get wet and you're flying through the air, and no matter what you do, you can't warm up. So that would be a bad day. Yeah, and but, it, it, but doesn't look. I mean. I guess the accident rate on it's pretty low. I mean, we 
we've very rarely hear about any accidents with this. I actually can't even remember hearing of one. Mm-hmm. Um, plenty of other types of uh, like ultralight vehicles, but not not the gyrocopter. So I guess it is a very safe vehicle. I oh. still have to scratch my head. I'm, I'm not sure I still quite understand exactly how the, the physics or aerody- aerodynamics of all this works. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't seem like it should work, but apparently it does pretty well. Actually. Oh, yeah. It's very good. Oh, yeah. It's very good. All right. Uh, item D. Uh, this is a great, a, a really good feel-good story, I think. Um, a U.S. Air Force technical sergeant, Kenneth O'Brien, always seems to be at the right place at the right time. He is a special ops pararescueman based in Japan. This is from cbsnews.com. Uh, while serving on the president's security d- detail during a summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, he saved a civilian from a burning car. Last year, he helped lead the rescue of the Thai soccer team. Uh, they were trapped in a flooded cave. You remember that? I remember that was going to, at least here in the U.S., they had a lot of coverage of that. Um, yeah. He was, oh, uh, that was uh, a hell of a uh, rescue, wasn't it? That mm-hmm. was really complicated. Didn't one of the, the uh, Thai divers uh, perish? I think uh, so. That rescue. Amazing how they got those kids out. It Incredible. is. And then he also saved a fellow rescuer, a Thai Navy SEAL. And uh, let's see. Here's a quote from him. He said, we're all willing to put our life on the line to help these other countries out. And we have to think, you know, if it was our children, our families, we would want people to step up and help us in the same situation. For his valor, he was honored as one of the 2019 Outstanding Airmen of the Year. 36 airmen were considered, only 12 selected based on leadership, job performance, and personal achievements. Just two weeks ago, while flying home uh, after acceptance of that award, an infant on the plane lost consciousness. O'Brien leapt into action again, clearing the child's blocked airway and saving another life. His commander, Lieutenant General Jim Slife, posted that he can't decide if O'Brien is a Superman or mayhem. The guy from the insurance commercials. <laughs> we'll just call him here. Yeah, because it's like every time he is there, something really bad happens. So I understand that quote from his his. Uh, Sure. Commander. I just think there's probably a lot of people in this world that are very glad he uh, is the man he is and, yeah. and uh, was willing to step forward and help in all these situations. Quite incredible. Yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking. It always seems like he's always at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. How many people are, are really like in that position all the time? It, it seems like it, it. he's just there. He, yeah. And it just he's and he has the ability to help out. That's great. And the willingness and the willingness is correct. I think many of us have the ability, but we aren't always willing to put ourselves out there like that. True. Yeah, good job. All right. And then finally, in the news folder, E, with little FAA direction, vaping devices add to fire dangers on planes. This is from the Washington Post. Um, In March, Southwest Airlines employees had to pull a smoking suitcase containing e-cigarette batteries from a plane's cargo hold in San Diego. Adjacent bags were damaged, as was the plane, which was temporarily taking, taken out of service, according to the FAA. Uh, e-cigarettes and the rechargeable lithium-ion batteries that power them have caused smoke or fire incidents on planes or airports more than 30 times in three years, according to an FAA database. Uh, let's see. I thought this was interesting that in the United States, uh, studies show each year uh, 2.3 billion electronic devices are carried on planes in the u.s it's a lot 
That's um, a lot of potential fires. It is. And I think we're going to start noticed, seeing this uh, more. With interest, sorry, Jeff. No, I noticed ahead. with interest that um, the Nobel Prize uh, winners this year included the three guys who invented lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, and I can understand why. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, the science of it and the energy efficiency or whatever that term is that people use to basically express the power potential that a battery has based on its its size and its weight. It was quite a discovery and a, quite a, an accomplishment, so I understand them. But I'm not sure that they understood how much risk it was going to be putting <laughs> the public in, yeah. you know, with people just carrying yeah. all these devices with all these batteries in them. Um, yeah, I, I mean, just, there's a lot of expo- potential exposure here. However, if we think about how many people travel with cell phones, iPads, mm-hmm. you know, or, or a, 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 not an iPad, but a, a you know, a, what do they call them? A, a personal, uh, electronic uh, device, electronic device. Um, I was thinking the surf, the surface or travel with a computer or, you know, the e-cigarettes or, you know, our cell, you know, our cell phones. I mean, it, it's amazing how much exposure there is. However, despite all of that exposure, if you look at the rate of incidents, it's, relatively low i'm not defending it don't get me wrong and it's obviously a very volatile uh substance the lithium-ion battery however if it's taken care of properly it's a relatively safe device relatively and i think 100 percent. i think that the and i I think we would agree with you and uh i think most or all perhaps of the incidents of lithium-ion battery fires have uh, something to do with the fact that uh, they're the manufacturer of the particular battery wasn't like one of the better manufacturers. There's a lot of um, I don't know what the term would be. Um, cowboys, yeah, cowboys pirated. Uh, you know, people making these things yeah. that don't have all the quality assurance that a lot of other well-known um, electronics companies and battery makers have. And um, so there's a lot of crappy stuff out there but it's cheap so people don't mind spending a lot less money on something that maybe isn't quite as safe <laughs> or maybe they don't understand the risks of uh, buying something from a disreputable uh, company uh, and sometimes yeah, we just right. don't know you know there we you know the device that we have we don't know what's in there yeah. no no it could be packaged looking very smart and they could charge a lot of money for it but we have really have no idea what protections are built inside to close it down if it starts to overheat right and that that's the problem so uh, yeah i mean it's obviously a worry for us particularly if people are stupid enough to put it in their check baggage so please don't do that um but uh i think they're uh, they're talking about it's up to the individual airlines uh i i would like to see legal action uh, taken by all countries involved uh, uh, to uh, ban it in the uh, in the cargo holds, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in passenger carrying aircraft. Uh, yes, the, the freight dogs can you know if given parachutes they can do their thing. <laughs> um, for us, we'd rather not have them around. Exactly. Um, and, and the word I was thinking about before was tablet. By the way, uh, you know, it, if you look at e-cigarettes. All right, so you have to press a button for it to actuate. Well, what happens if it's checked and, and put in a, a piece of luggage that people don't realize what's going on and it, it gets the, the button gets actuated? 
right? So it's continuously going. It will eventually overheat and, and, and cause fire. So those are some of the safeguards that people should be individually held responsible. But they're, you know, how do we hold everybody responsible in that way? That's, right. that's the big question. Uh, Jeff Gebhardt um, in our chat room asks Dana and I, your cargo bellies have smoke detectors, but no smoke suppression, correct? And Dana answered him, but the correct answer is we have both uh, detection and suppression. But the problem with these lithium ion batteries is that, uh, and we've seen videos uh, that have been uh, done by the FAA and other agencies where you know, if you're tra- if you're if you have several, let's say a pallet of these batteries, and one of them starts going into a thermal runaway, uh, the suppression systems that we have aboard airplanes really don't do a very good job of of putting the fire out. Uh, they they almost can't. They don't have the capability of it. So it's, they're still very dangerous. Now we're talking about no, the, yeah, the the fire is self sustaining and uh, it burns incredibly hot as well. So and very quickly. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't take very long for a serious uh, fire of that type to actually burn down through the belly of the aircraft, uh, cutting anything that's in the way. You know, you've seen the movie Alien. It's a bit like the alien saliva. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> that's that's just not a visual I needed right about now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm retired. I don't care. Thanks for that. No problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully. Uh, something can be done to, you know, prevent or reduce this risk. Um, but in the meantime, we just have to, you know, keep saying over and over again to people, you know, you keep those darn batteries out of your checked luggage. Make sure that you have them with you on board so that if these things do go into a thermal runaway, we have a fighting chance to put them out. Exactly right. All right. Well, guess what? That's the end of our news segment. And that mm-hmm. means we get to go to your feedback. Captain, incoming message. The first item is from Ed. Hey guys and gal, just starting listening this year to the show and really enjoy the podcast. I also work for Acme Airlines and currently bid off the Mad Dog on the last big bid. Huh, there we go a fellow mad dog driver on uh, at Acme. Uh, question, was Dana a ground instructor at Acme before flying for Acme? 20 years ago, I had a ground instructor on the 88, and I swear it's Dana. If so, you did a great job. No, that wasn't him. Yeah, no. <laughs> no way possible was me. It was him. It was indeed. Yep, that was uh, Ed. That was definitely me. Uh, I was... Uh, an Acme ground school instructor back in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. And, uh, yeah, it, it was me back then when I was had a little more hair, had a little less girth. And Where, where was a, this hair? It was, it was my twinkle in the eye that I always wanted to be flying the Mad Dog, and here I am. So, When did you actually leave the uh, ground instructor job? Uh, 2002, after they okay. offered the severance packages post-9-11. So it must have been... Uh, shortly before I got the bid on the or got displaced from the 727, because I was in training like in April, May, June ish on uh, the Mad Dog of that year, 2002. 
I was I was I was still in training then. I oh. didn't leave uh, okay. Acme until uh, October first of. Well, maybe I had him too. I don't remember though. <laughs> this is long before the idea of doing a podcast ever existed. So, right. Okay. So, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Small world. It is. Anyway, um, I'm emailing about the Cessna jet crash you guys brought up on one of your shows. One problem is the pilot training programs of corporate aviation and personal jets. Hearing from friends who currently fly for a couple of corporate departments based around Atlanta, they or the corporation pay for their training, obviously. If the owner, pilot, or corporate jet pilot is selected for more training, the students might go to another school next time. Therefore, the training school passes the pilot, he puts in quotes, passes the pilot, even though they didn't meet the standards, just so that the school can keep getting students. Of course, the school will deny that. He said there's no checking going on. Bad for the passengers on their flights. Unfortunately, I don't have a solution. The FAA is too busy, and the government won't give them any money. The pilot shortage isn't going to help either. We all hate having an LCA, a line check airman, on our flights, and going through training every nine months is very stressful, but it keeps most airline pilots in their books and on their toes. Anyway, my two cents, see on the line, tailwinds and cold brews, or slightly cold cask brews in Britain. Ed, and he said, P.S., I hate training by bulletin. <laughs> we all do. I think we all do. That's hey, Ed, you didn't tell us where you're going. Are you coming off the Mad Dog? But what are you going to next? Is it a Boeing or is it an Airbus? What he, he did not like say, did he? Yeah, like to know. But anyways, uh, I agree with the, Ed. You know, the civilian world is completely it. it it's obviously self-regulated for the most part. There are regulations uh, written by the FAA, but most times you won't ever see a check. Uh, you know, ramp check. The chance of getting a ramp check is very, very slim. Uh, the FAA generally doesn't come out and ride with you for a civilian uh, a check rides unless you're doing something like a, a flight instructor certificate thing. You have uh, the FAA that rides with you. Uh, mostly it's designated examiners that do the examining. And, and some guys are really good. Some guys and girls, I should say, are really uh, not the best. And, you know, <laughs> I remember back when I was in my civilian training, uh, we knew who to go to. Uh, and who to stay away from as far as ex designated examiners. And I remember meeting uh, one of my close friends uh, back in the day. when He went to a, a certain guy, a PDK. I'm not going to use his name, but he was known from being excessively uh, difficult and excessively thorough. And I had a little run-in with him uh, back when, you know, I was trying to get hired with him, and I did get hired, uh, however, they thought that they were doing things the way the airlines were doing. And we just talked about the fact that um, I was a ground school instructor and he was telling me this is how the airlines do it. And I kind of looked at him, cocked my head a little bit and I said, the airlines do what? Yeah, this is how the airlines. Uh, no, uh, they do not do it that way. So, but you, you get your different uh, quality out there. Uh, the the really nice thing about the, uh, the flying world nowadays, the level of automation uh, has made flying, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, safer in a lot of ways, in some ways uh, more dangerous because uh, the automation has taken people's attention from being outside the aircraft, especially when you're flying VFR um, and you know, by visual flight rules, has taken their attention way into more into the uh, cockpit environment. However, with, with good instruction, you, you, know, you can break people of that. But the, I think overall the automation, I think if Dr. Seth was here, 
Uh, she would tell you a little bit about the SR-22 and even the newer Cessnas and all the pipe, newer Piper Warriors. Uh, amazing the automation and in, in, in the level of uh, ability of the aircraft these days to, to fly safely. And even the older aircraft, uh, you know, general aviation aircraft are, are pretty um, pretty safe all, overall. And most of the pilots out there are very conscientious, you know, as the instructor was telling me, uh, when, when I was just in my uh, FAA uh, recurrent here, uh, somebody takes a poop, we all wear diapers, right? So somebody, one person makes a mistake, it, the rest of us pay pay the price through regulation changes and so forth and so on. But that, I, would, I would argue that that's part of the learning process, that we all become better usually by people making mistakes and we learn from them hopefully nobody pays with their with their lives so i, I would i would argue that that aviation today on the whole is probably safer okay what do you guys think yeah i i agree to a certain extent it's one of the reasons i have always had such an interest in uh aviation history and accidents and incidents that have occurred even going back uh you know 50 years or more because that's where we do our homework if we're responsible pilots we shouldn't have to wait for someone to make a uh, a headline grabbing accident before we all learn about something of course technology changes and things change but the basics are, are like that i prefer people to learn from a mistake and uh, not have to commit it themselves. So I agree. Yeah. Oh, well said. Um, by the way, uh, not all the beer in Britain is slightly cold. We, we get all kinds here. So you get every choice. Yes, you do. Well, Ed, Ed clearly doesn't know me because he said tailwinds and cold brews. Yeah. <sighs> well, but you, you know what? You may have we like that. He may have said that I was a good ground school instructor, and thank you very much for that, Ed. I appreciate that. But obviously, I didn't teach you properly. It should have been tailwinds, cold brews, and great bourbons. Ugh, what am I going to do with these people? I don't know. It's Dana <laughs> at AirlinePilotGuy.com. There you go, Ed. All right, item two. Mike says, Hi, Liz, Jeff, and the gang. Just wanted to send you the short note about a recent movie shoot in southwestern Ontario. The movie's working title is Boundless. That's the actual title, Boundless. It features both Canadian and American actors and was filmed mostly at Guelph Air Park. We'll see if Liz tells me through our private chat if I pronounce that properly. Uh, one of the aircraft featured in the film is a real World War II veteran Harvard, one of the Canadian Harvard Aircraft Association's eight Harvard airplanes. Our movie star was built in 1941 for the RAF before she was transferred to the RCAF to participate in the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Some of the women this movie celebrates may have actually been trained in this very airplane. Oh, Liz says she doesn't know if exactly how to pronounce that either. So she said it sounds good to me. Uh, Guelph is located approximately 50 kilometers west of Toronto. Our Harvard and our association is based out of Tillensburg, no oh wait, nope, Tilsonburg, approximately 120 kilometers southwest of Toronto. If you or any of the hosts or any of the listeners want to, you can go for a warbird flight experience in this World War II veteran airplane or any of our three other flying Harvards. A fifth will be receiving its new overhauled engine this fall and will be available for rides early in the year. Oh, it's Guelph. She must have looked it up. 
Uh, here's a link to Guelph's local papers article on the movie. And so he gives us a link there. It'll be in the show notes. And he says, I hope to record an audio feedback responding to Liz and Steph's recent, about a month ago, visit to the Canadian National Exhibition in late August. There is good beer in that area and a better air show down the highway in London. And there you go. So, yeah, I think that, uh, I guess Steph and Liz were complaining that the the choices for beer weren't that great actually at the uh, Canadian National Exhibition. So I guess that's what he's saying, that in the area, there are some good choices for beer and a better air show down the highway in London. And this is Michael Lawrence, Vice President, Canadian Harvard Aircraft Association. Cha! That's probably not the way they pronounce that. And, uh, <laughs> but I like it. Cha! The C-H-A-A. Um, and then there's a uh, an article here uh, from the Guelph Mercury newspaper, I think, or guelphmercury.com uh, about the the film telling the story of female pilots during the Second World War, which is really... Oh, speaking of that, and I believe we... Oh, yeah. Uh, Will Cool uh, was... Um, sent us some feedback last year, I believe, about a young lady who wrote a book about her, I think her grandmother, who was a wasp. Uh, isn't that what they call them? They, uh, no, what, what were they? Um, the, the women pilots that uh, were... Um, I think wasp, wasps. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought you were... I thought you were wasp, okay, I thought you were shaking your head no. So, okay. No, no, I wasn't shaking my head no. Okay. Um, and uh, off and on over the years, they've allowed these uh, women pilots to be buried in the Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and But there was never, ever any rule that uh, that allowed them to or banned them from being uh, buried there. So the, her book is the story of her journey uh, working through Congress to get a law passed so that it was official that all women who uh, had the proper credentials and were, were some of the wasps, wasp pilots uh, could, if they wanted to, be buried in the uh, Arlington uh, National Cemetery. So um, a very, I, I have not read the book myself, but I think uh, Will was saying that he was, she was going to be at one of these events um, signing her book and, and promoting it and all that. And at his party, she was there. So I got to meet her in person and uh, yeah, so that was a, that was kind of a treat. And uh, so. So it's the women air force service pilots. There we go. Or just women air service or was it air force service? Uh, women air, oh, I've just closed air. the window. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Damn. Damn. Oh, well. My bad. Uh, hang on, I'll leave it back now. Uh, women Air Force Service oh, Pilots. Air Force. Okay. Service yes. Pilots. Then it would be wafts. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure you can think of something suitable. Yeah, wasp <laughs> sounds much better. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, so that's very cool. Uh, thank you, uh, Mike, for sending in the info regarding the uh, the film. And hopefully you'll let us know when it's being released. Said so it's scheduled to wrap up filming on September 29th. And it should be screened at film festivals next year. That's good. 
Oh, by the way, uh, Virgin Atlantic have produced a... Uh, well, I don't say Virgin have. Um, they have uh, somehow got the makers of Barbie dolls to produce a uh, lady pilot and a lady cabin crew wearing uh, Virgin Atlantic colors, which I think is great. Oh, nice. I did make the comment uh, on Twitter when I saw it, where's Ken? And um, they said, uh, there are too many uh, white middle-aged males already. <laughs> I said, Ken's not middle-aged. Apparently. May as well be. <laughs> he is old. He just doesn't look that old. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, so if you want a uh, a lady pilot doll to play, give to your kids and encourage them to get into aviation, look for the Barbie dolls. What if you just want a lady pilot? Okay. Well, I think Barbie probably aren't going to help you out there. <laughs> okay. They're a little too androgynous for that. Um, better move on before I get into any trouble. <laughs> you, you notice? You notice? I'm making yes. no comment. I, Good I, man. Yes, you're very. So you don't want another lawsuit. Your judgment is right there today, sir. Wait, hold on. Uh, it's the more the captain esque judgment these That's days. That's got to be. I've learned my lesson. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Ben writes. Uh, just wanted to drop you a line and let you know how impressed I am with your podcast. And he goes, "Oh, I'm sorry. I was writing to the wrong podcast. <laughs> yes, I was writing the other bunch." <laughs> <laughs> Like many airline pilot commuters, I have my fair share of time in transit, and your episodes are a great way of making the time fly by. I'm lucky enough to have many wonderful years in GA, time on McDonnell Douglas, uh, well, the B-717 anyway. Yeah, that's a that's an MD. And Airbus, A320-330, and Boeing 787 aircraft. Sorry, Nick, but the ICAS poops all over the ECAM. Well, you haven't seen the A350s yet, so I'm going to reserve judgment before I take that as gospel. Yeah, well, I don't I really know what he means. Uh, if only I could get rid of the control column. So he does like the idea of the side stick controller. Uh, good man. And anyway, or anyhow, I'm constantly grateful to always pick up some snippet of knowledge from your own experiences and feedback. I hope more of my younger airline colleagues will listen in on your podcast, as I believe your mantra is all about good basic airmanship, passion, and pride in our industry. Yes. Yes. That's what we're about. Kind regards. This is Ben from Australia. Thank you, Ben. And uh, thank you for the, the kind uh, compliments. And uh, I hope that uh, more and more people down under... Uh, find out about us because we would love to have more listeners from down under. Absolutely. Well, not if they're like Glenn. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, for the most part, I think they're okay. Yeah. You, you know, I did, I did on this one, come up with a, with a comment. If I want to fly a computerized jet, I'll just go into the simulator. Or you could fly the F-16, the F-15, the F-18, the F-22, or the F-35, which would be pretty exciting. How is he going to do that? Well, yeah, they're computerized airplanes. But how is you he going to fly them? In the simulator <laughs> to fly one. Can, you just, can you just call somebody and say, I want to fly them? Yeah, you call the Air Force and say, can I join? <laughs> and then like five years later. I think he might be a little bit too old for that. Not yeah, that he's I'm old. I'm over the hill. What a shame. <laughs> Remember my early comment about running? Yeah. No. So you so, have to run in the Air Force. I believe that uh, the cut, well, it used to be the cutoff was I. you had to start undergraduate pilot training by like 27 or 28. They may have a, 
exceptions for that now uh, because they are also experiencing a shortage of pilots there. Um, so the, the moral of the story there, Jeff, is get out and fly. We, yeah. need, we need pilots. We do. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, item four, Carter. Uh, I just heard this great quote from a friend of mine, Mike Mastin. I thought you all would enjoy it. And here's the quote. Perhaps we have deviated from rule number one, fly the airplane. Or to rewrite another expression, there are old pilots and software pilots, but no old software pilots. And I I refer the gentleman to my previous answer I just gave. Yep. It ties in very well with the uh, last uh, piece of feedback there. The saying is, you know, there are old pilots and bold pilots, but no old, bold pilots. Don't try to make too much out of that, Dana. By the way, uh, uh, he uh, and uh, Mr. Carter and Mr. Marston are both now off my Christmas card list. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I don't think they were talking about you specifically, were they? Well, I'm an old software pilot. Well, I'm an old pilot, and I deal with software. That's what she said. I've been a software pilot. (laughs) 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 Um, Wait a minute. That's not the kind of software I'm talking about. Mostly hardware. You did. You got me. You got me. Oh, my. Okay. Well, let's see. Where's HR? We need her. Steph. I don't know if she's still in the chat room or not. She shouldn't be. She should be packing. Hope she's hearing this. Well, I hope she isn't, actually. Okay. Um, item five Gustav sent us some audio feedback. This. I'm getting tired of listening to us talk. So, Gustav, why don't you help us out by talking? Well, hello there, APT crew. This is Gustav from Sweden calling in with some voice feedback. Now, last weekend, me and my son paid a visit to the Aeroseum Airplane Museum located in Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden. The museum itself is housed in an old Cold War era hangar slash bunker located under a mountain constructed to uh, protect the airplanes inside it from any attack above. Now, as you walk into the museum, you go down a slope slash a ramp, and along this ramp, there are a number of old Swedish fighter jets. You start with a Saab J-29 Tunnan, then a Saab J-35 Draken, and a Saab AJ-37 Viggen. And as I was walking down the ramp, I was... uh, reminding myself of how great it is that we have the capability to produce such fine fighter jets in Sweden. In fact, we continue to produce uh, jets by ourselves even today. And uh, the Boeing T-7 Red Hawk was uh, constructed and built together with Saab, or is being built together with Saab. Now, uh, as we were uh, standing there looking at the Saab AJ-37 Viggen, and I was admiring its rather ungainly fuselage. I was reminded that inside of that bulky airplane, uh, there is an JT-8D engine, or at least a version of it. Except that this JT-8D has a pretty nice add-on, namely an afterburner. And I was chuckling a little bit to myself, imagining if uh, Captain Jeff was able to find two of... uh, those second-hand afterburners and strapping them on to his mad dog. 
Now, if he was able to do so, I would imagine that uh, any cold, troubling jokes would uh, disappear faster than a Saab Viggen would be able to outfly an F4. While we were at the museum, we were also uh, uh, we also tried some of the simulators they have there. Uh, uh, although pretty rudimentary in nature, it's uh, it's a it's a nice possibility. And they have an Airbus A300 simulator, uh, Saab J AJ37 Diggin simulator, and also a Comanche simulator. And as I was there with my son, a year and a half old, they suggested that we try the the Comanche, and and we did so. And it turns out that my son he loves the controls of an airplane just as much as I do. However, we have pretty different views of how these controls should be used and uh, how an airplane should be flown. And uh, needless to say, it led to some pretty interesting maneuvers. And I got a new appreciation of the struggles that the crew on that uh, DC-10 that the old curmudgeon was talking about a few episodes ago were having. Uh, in the end, I, I thought that he could play a, a little bit with the throttle and I could do the controls just fine. However, this led to a pretty interesting landing with uh, an unfortunate outcome. However, I'm pretty encouraged by his interest in uh, controls of an airplane and I hope that one day he will become a pilot. I'm pretty happy as well because today I ordered a coffee cup with the APG logo on it and it will brighten up every day at work and I'm very much looking forward to having it. Um, on my desk soon. Anyway, I just wanted to share this experience with you. And if anyone finds themselves in Gothenburg or in the west coast of Sweden, I highly suggest that you pay in a visit to the Aerosium Museum. Anyway, take care and have a good day. Excellent. Thank you for that uh, great audio feedback, Gustav. And oh yeah, I love the way he said Drakken. Isn't that brilliant? The, I'd have said it really boringly, like Draken, but uh, oh, is that what he was really, saying? Yeah, Drak, Drakten, Drak. It sounded like Draken. He okay. really pronounced it. Sharply. Yeah, I love that uh, Swedish accent, and uh, it is pretty impressive that uh, that Sweden um, makes on their own their own fighter jets, the Viggen. Oh yeah, and those two were quite remarkable. Uh, really uh, advanced aerodynamics for their time, using uh, a canal and uh, also a double sweep delta on those two uh, aircraft. So, uh, they, you know, I always admired them for uh, for doing that. That's brilliant. Wasn't that the um, at Farnborough, I think the first year that we went, uh, 2016, um, I remember going into one of the uh, vendors uh, buildings and they had a, um, I think it was Saab and they had a, a, a one of their Viggen fighters. They had a simulator in there. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. yeah. I think, I think we was gonna, it not the Gripen though? Was it not the, it may the have been latest, the Gripen, yeah. uh, fly by wire? Probably was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is also a fantastic airplane. It's been around a while now, but, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, very good. And he makes and a good point. Maybe uh, in a modern version of that. I don't know. Could be. And he makes a very good point. Um, the, the replacement of the T-38, the uh, the T-7, what do you call it? The Red Hawk, I think, uh, is not just a Boeing thing. It's a joint venture between Boeing and Saab. And uh, so it's going to be uh, quite an airplane, I believe. Um, and uh, I do love the his idea of putting, uh, slapping a couple of afterburners on some JT-8Ds for, uh, for Dana and I have to have a, a super-powered 
Mad Dog. That would, that be a would lot work of fun. brilliantly till the wings fell off. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Anyway, and and also, actually, there were so many things in his audio feedback that were very, uh, very clever and funny. Uh, his son um, activating the uh, flight controls of the Comanche simulator, much like Nick's story of the FedEx DC-10 pilots and the actions that they <laughs> were were using inside the cockpit, I guess, to try to uh, put down the uh, the guy that was attacking them. I guess so. Uh, not the oh, smoothest yeah. uh, maneuvering, I guess, from yeah, that was the, uh, the FedEx uh, yeah. hijack story. Yes, I think that's what exactly. he's referring to. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the fact that it, 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 what was the term that he used? An unfortunate con- uh, conclusion, the landing. <laughs> 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 anyway, great stuff. Thank you, uh, Gustav, for uh, sending in the feedback from Gothenburg. Isn't that where Batman lives? No, I think that's Gotham City. Oh, okay. Sorry. But Berg means Sub- city, suburb. though, right? Yeah, suburb. <laughs> Sub- uh, suburb. Gotham <laughs> City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Stephen <laughs> says, Dear Captain Jeff and the APG crew, I'm a relatively new listener based in the UK. Though a plane nut as a child, I only became directly involved in aviation just before my 40th birthday five years ago. Initially, this was through gliding, but have had a UK national pilot's license for two years, holding ratings for touring motor gliders and micro lights, what I think you call light sport or ultralight in the US. Um, let's see, max takeoff weight less than or equal to 450 kilograms, whatever that means in wow, pounds. That's like- it's like two of me. It's like they must be smaller, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, I said micro. Actually, no, it's four and a half of me. But that's. I was going to say, yeah. Wait a minute, because um, a kilogram is like two point two pounds yeah, or something. I, I, I suddenly switched to my weight in pounds there for a second. <laughs> okay. You went the yeah. wrong direction there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like fifteen hundred pounds, I think, would probably work out about right, wouldn't it? Four fifty times two point two. Two point two. No, it's only just over a thousand. Twelve hundred, maybe something like that. Okay, I recently listened with interest to your discussion on the rules regarding alcohol intake, and it made me think about how, if at all, airlines monitor your behavior overall regarding your health. It's not compulsory, is it? Is there a a rule? For what? Alcohol intake. It's not compulsory, is it? Um, That you have to imbibe alcohol? Uh, Yeah, I think you have to. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. okay. Uh, I must be where I got the habit. (laughs) If if there was an airline like that, I'd, I'd certainly... Not want to go fly for it. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Especially the people that really don't want to imbibe, but they do. They're forced to. Um, he says, I very rarely sleep more than eight hours, and if I get less than six hours sleep, I really don't feel great. I walk a bit of a tightrope. As a result, I am quite conscious about being physically active, trying to stick to regular sleeping patterns, eating well, not drinking, etc. It's a bit boring, but it works for me. With my own flying, on one or two occasions, I've canceled my slot because I felt out of sorts. At the gliding club, I've been with, or I've been standing around, okay, let me try this again. At the gliding club, if I've been standing around all day waiting for my name to reach the top of the list, a few times I've declined a flight because I feel tired, hot, dehydrated, etc. Naturally, I'm free to pick and choose. It's just a hobby. As far as my day is concerned, sat behind a desk, I have to turn up no matter how I feel, within reason. 
I wondered what policies or attitudes airlines have towards a pilot's general discipline. Blood alcohol levels are an objective measure and rules are set out in law. What about other behaviors that could affect performance on the flight deck? What if the pilot spent his free time eating junk food and playing on his games console until the early hours, only grabbing a couple of hours of sleep before duty? I imagine his performance would deteriorate considerably in the latter parts of his shift. Can, can how do airlines mitigate against this? Best regards to you all. Stephen Hitchin. And he says, P.S. with a double nod to my constitution and Dr. Steph, I attach a photo of what I was sipping at a pub quiz this week. And it's a picture of from it's a bottle from Big Drop Brewing Company. And it is an IPA or some oh, I'm not sure if it's an IPA or not. It doesn't say uh, it says 0.5% alcohol by volume. So just a just a couple drops of alcohol in that bottle. Very low. Uh, alcohol. Oh, he said it was an IPA. So uh, again, this will be in the show notes if you want to take, see the picture of the Big Drop Brewing Company. Oh, the Big Drop is the alcohol they're dropping into it. Ah, there you go. I'm just guess. I'm just making that up. Uh, so yeah, we're basically responsible for making sure that we are fit to perform our flights. And every time that Dana and I walk up to the gate and we're handed the package, the flight plan package, at the very top is a flight release. And we're required to sign the release, basically certifying that we are fit. We've met all the regulations. Uh, we've, you know, had a, an ample um, uh, opportunity to get sleep. And we feel like we are ready to go to work and and uh, nothing is affecting us physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. Um, and but there's no, we're not at the point yet where our watches, like uh, the Apple Watch, has some kind of a thing that pierces our skin and keeps a constant keeps constant track of our blood alcohol levels and other. Uh, vitals, although I can imagine, I can see that happening in the future, perhaps. I don't know. Well, you, you do have cars that can sniff your breath mm -hmm. and won't start up if it detects alcohol. That is true. So there is technology for this sort of thing. Oh, no, it's all out there. Um, but uh, no, it's, it, the airlines are not overly intrusive at this point in time uh, about that. But again, it's, it's personal responsibility. Yeah, yeah, but it, like Dana said a little earlier on, it only takes one guy to poop and everyone's wearing diapers. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it, we we continually hear of guys who uh, push the limits in the news. And uh, thankfully, there aren't too many knee-jerk reactions. But uh, it, it it's never going to get easier. It's only going to get worse. And the best thing is for us the entire, as an industry to be responsible and, uh, you know, only fly when we're fit, both uh, our drinking habits uh, and uh, keep an eye on our health and not push it. Um, yeah. Yep. You know, uh, yesterday, Stephen, was a perfect example how things can domino and you have to take into consideration your fit fitness duty. Um, and yesterday I had, uh, I couldn't get an appointment for uh, my tire. It had a slow leak in it that was actually more than a slow leak. It was leaking down quite a bit in my truck 
that if I had left it in the employee parking lot for four days, I would have come back to a flat tire. The only appointment I could get was yesterday morning at 7.30 in the morning before I had to stay up until midnight 30 uh, to fly the airplane safely to Toronto. So I had to assess uh, my fitness to duty and sign on that piece of paper that Jeff mentioned. Um, so, you know, there's some other things that, uh, that that come into play beyond that. You know, I felt fine. I actually had a two-hour break in Atlanta, went and took a 15-minute power nap, and I was fresh and ready to go to finish my flying up to Toronto. And, and I probably would have been fine if I had not done that, but certainly that just enhanced my ability to uh, mitigate the, uh, and, and there, there are, uh, are ways to mitigate uh, certain things. You know, you asked about blood alcohol levels. Uh, my personal uh, blood alcohol level is zero. I don't show up to work with any alcohol in my system. Uh, everybody should do the same because that's what the law is. And that's what we're talking about here is the questions you have asked are really uh, completely and totally covered by uh, the uh, FARs and the, the laws that are associated with them. And we have to um, take personal responsibility for them. Um, you know, as far as what if pilot spends time eating junk food and playing on his games console? Okay, you can do whatever you want to do in your free time as long as you show up at work. And ultimately, if you read that and eating junk food, at some point that's going to catch up to you. If you can continuously do that, you will no longer be able to obtain a medical certificate because then your blood pressure is going to be too high. You're going to end up with diabetes, bubble, you know, all, all these lists of things that could perpetuate. So you do have to take some responsibility. You do have to eat properly, which I try to do. You have to work out, try to stay healthy. And that's all on your, on the personal level. So uh, just to answer some of that, some more of that for you, Stephen, and, and what I think on it. Very good. Great questions, Stephen. And moving on, item seven from Ahmad and from Nigeria, and he sent us some audio feedback. Hello, fellow APGers. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, and Captain Dana. I'm still with you guys. I'm listening to episode 392 while still far back as episode 209. Thought I'd listen to it from the current side and from the old side. I just wanted to say how funny you guys really are about the in-flight refueling for the A-10 and the KC airplanes. Man, you guys had me laughing my head off. Wow, that's really cool. Very nice sense of humor you guys have. Keep up the good work and I'll keep on listening. Cavu to you. Over and out. Cavu to you. And sounds like you're having a big party or something at your house, Ahmad. Uh, and I think uh, you said, Nick, that he's in our chat room. Uh, absolutely. He's in the, the new Facebook stream chat room. Oh, okay. Room. Great. So you should get his comments up on our live comment page. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's been uh, chatting away. Excellent. And, and great to see you uh, in the chat room, Ahmed, and uh, great to have you on board. Thanks for your, uh, your kind comments. Yes. Thank you, Ahmed. Appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm glad you're still with us. We're still with you. Okay. Um, item eight from Texas, Charlie. Howdy all. Anyone seen a fight during the line of business? Doctors included. This one is pretty punny. No, puny. I'm sorry. I thought he was trying to make a pun out of the word. Uh, this one is pretty puny, but still enough for a slap from HR. And then he sends us a link to the fracas or fracas at San Antonio airport. And I guess it's a video. I don't, I didn't come through on the Evernote version of this, so I didn't um, 
were you able to see the video that was um, associated with this particular piece of feedback, guys? Yeah, yeah. I saw it on, I think it was on a newspaper website feed. Uh, I didn't get all of it, but okay. uh, enough to see two guys bundling on the ground and uh, all looked a bit childish. So passengers and crew on a flight from San Antonio headed to Las Vegas were in for a surprise Thursday afternoon when they witnessed an apparent fight between baggage handlers who were slugging one another uh, underneath a neighboring plane parked at the terminal. I guess the video and, and the audience was on the Frontier uh, flight uh, next door, and the uh, the baggage uh, handlers were going at each other uh, in a in a violent way. And uh, so somebody obviously took video of it. I'll have to see if I can find that myself. Um, anyway, I think the one of the pilots from the Frontier Airlines flight was able to call somebody on one of the uh, frequencies to uh, uh, let them know that there was something not good happening uh, at the neighboring gate. And they finally got some people to respond. But I guess it was <laughs> it took them some time to get over there to break it up. And it looks like the San Antonio Airport Police Department did issue citations to both individuals. Uh, I guess they, they struggled with each other with this fighting, and then they just got up and kind of shook themselves off and went back to work. So, and I guess it was like a third-party company, not the airline. What was the airline? Uh, like a discount uh, Mexican airline, Interjet or something like that. Uh, somewhere here in the uh, article, I believe. But uh, it wasn't, uh, yeah, Interjet. It wasn't, uh, they weren't employees of that airline, nor were they employees of Frontier. It was a one of the third-party companies that uh, provide services such as baggage handling and such. Uh, it does worry me. We, we, we uh, all have to sit through safety videos about behavior on the ramp, how dangerous it is, what uh, a difficult environment it can be with lots of noise, a heap of vehicles, uh, lots of potential for uh, injury. And you, you get two guys that can't wait till they finish work before they have a physical altercation on the ramp and i'm just wondering uh, what on earth sort of a place these guys thought they were you know uh, an airfield a ramp working close to an air aircraft worth millions upon millions of dollars is not a place to take out personal grievances uh, you pick your moments guys if you've got a grudge then just finish your job at work and then sort it out in the bar over a beer preferably, without resorting to fisticuffs. But the fact that you can let yourself go so close to uh, in, and in such a dangerous environment really worries me. Yeah. Have you ever been a witness to anything like this, Dana? Yeah, Network? I mean, it's uh, a little bit more common than people would like to think. I've, I've heard of a, a few instances where it's happened, uh, but not in such public display. You know, especially uh, on a ramp, you've got uh, uh, a little more, I don't want to sound the wrong way, uh, but a little uh, more tough people that work in the ramp because you have to have a certain level of toughness to be out there in all that weather and be in the bellies of aircraft throwing bags. And sometimes people can have uh, uh, very uh, differing opinions. Uh, but I agree with you, Nick. It, it's not the place to, to take it out. And certainly, uh, I mean, obviously, the engine may have not been a factor, but you get around an operating jet engine that can easily, once you're off balance, take you in and, and turn you into mincemeat. So it's it's a very dangerous place, or 
end up on the on the ramp and uh, you know have a bad cart come uh, run you over because you've lost your situational awareness. So, or one of those beverage carts that spins wildly out of control. Uh, yes, a beverage cart that spins wildly. Uh, those, uh, yeah, those self uh, dispensing <laughs> yes. beverage carts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like you. I listened to you guys back on that one. That was great. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, seriously, it, it's it's it's. It, I don't care whether it's an airport airplane. Uh, you know, working for uh, you know some mom and pop company off the airport or any other company for that matter, uh, you don't ever act that way at work. And yeah. if you have a problem, then, you know, maybe you get the right people involved. But maybe, you know, not to defend the guy, but maybe he just found out that that person was sleeping with his girlfriend. I, I mean, I don't know. We don't know what the situation was. Well, speaking of that, a very I, I just heard this, I think, maybe yesterday or maybe earlier today, that there was some kind of an incident, and I'm sure – We'll get some uh, feedback about it, or perhaps it's already in our the news folder for the next show. I'm not sure uh, where there was some sort of an altercation between a captain and his first officer, and I believe that they were um, dating each other at one point, or maybe they were currently dating each other, or perhaps married. They were in a relationship, and they were out in the jetway fighting because apparently uh, the female found some um, some evidence of the other person cheating on her or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and apparently there were the, the crew together on, on this particular trip and, uh, they had to cancel the flight. I think it was a United. <laughs> well, that's flight. not the worst we've had though. Do you remember the Indian crew? Uh-huh. Where oh, yeah. They had an altercation between the first host and the captain, and it turned out they'd have, they were both off the flight deck in the middle of the flight. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's when it's way out of control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, I, I, a great story from one of our uh, captains now retired. Um, uh, let me uh, remind you, oh, I get you to remind me to tell it to you when we're off the air, but it concerned his uh, his wife ironing his uniform. And uh, he's the punchline was never buy your wife a cordless iron. Um, so I'll tell you that story. It's a okay. great story. <laughs> Everyone else, you won't get to hear it. I'm sorry. You know, if if people could learn the 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 the, the philosophy, don't poop where you eat, then you won't have to worry about these altercations. I mean, people are just, uh, yeah, don't don't yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Oh, speaking of uh, the ramp being a, a dangerous place, especially when engines are running, uh, my first officer was talking about a uh, an experience that he had when he was flying the uh, Embraer 170, 175. And they were pulling into a gate somewhere, and they were just about at the stopping point, and all of a sudden they hear this big like thump, and not kind of a bang, but it was like a, a very loud noise, and they kind of looked at each other like, it felt like they'd hit something and they looked over at the jetway operator and she was looking back at them like going, what was that? And they found out that one of the rampers down there walked up as the airplane was pulling in and the engine still running and put a orange safety cone in front of it <laughs> while it was still running. And it just got sucked right up into the engine. It just, he said it was about 20 yards. Pieces of the cone were 20 yards behind the jet. Oh, and uh, no. they said the irony was it was a safety cone. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. You got to you got to have your own brain. You can't be sharing yeah. brains out there, people. Do you do you know why they no longer put the air hose across the ramp for arrival for aircraft? 
I guess maybe one was sucked up into an engine. Exact reason why that cone was disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it takes a few extra minutes. Yeah. Wow. Little tidbit information for you. Yeah. So that, uh, that one or $2 per hour they were saving on that particular ramp worker uh, on his wages, uh, turned out to be a multi-million dollar, um, repair on that engine. Not good. What do they call that? Penny wise and pound foolish. Yep. Yes. Well, when it comes out of somebody else's budget. That's true. The insurance company, most likely, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Are we? Well, yes. I think, are we? Okay. <laughs> Do you re- you're reading my mind, I guess. It's um, on your yes. Okay. I think it might be a great time now to get to the best part of the show, which, of course, everyone knows is the old pilot's plane tales. The old pilot's plain tales. Apremoi la deluge, part three. This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sauber reservoirs. It was as early as 1937 that the Air Ministry had drawn up a list of potential targets to attack in the event of the outbreak of war with Germany. One of the ideas was to destroy the large dams in the Ruhr, and many ways were examined to achieve this. Most involved in practically large weapons that at the time couldn't be physically carried, to other fanciful ideas such as huge rocket-powered torpedoes. Amongst these proposals was one from a chap called Wallace, who worked at Vickers. A clever chap, but a bit harebrained. As mad as a hatter, in fact. He thinks he can bounce a huge bomb along the surface of the reservoirs right up to the dam. Many in the Air Ministry initially viewed his idea of a bouncing bomb as sheer madness and a complete waste of valuable time and resources, and his attempts to be taken seriously were rebuffed. Wallace had come up with the idea while skipping stones over the water at Chesil Beach on a holiday in Dorset, and had spent many hours in his back garden with a catapult and a few tanks of water, skipping marbles across his garden, until he had the data to back up his theory. His main obstacle was Air Marshal Linnell. Linnell was the controller of research and development at the Ministry of Aircraft Production, and, perhaps influenced by Wallace's boss at Vickers, Charles Craven, wanted Wallace to drop the idea and continue with his development of the Vickers-Windsor, a potential high-altitude bomber that the RAF desperately needed. Again and again, the bouncing bomb proposal was rejected, until, perhaps prompted by Sir Henry Tizard, whom you might remember from an earlier tale, Tizard's Trunk, Linnell finally agreed to allow limited trials to go ahead. Wallace worked like a man possessed until his loved ones became concerned about his health, but he was driven to solve the continual line of obstacles that he had to overcome, both in the theory, design, 
construction and delivery, in addition to the bureaucracy that stood in his way. It wasn't just him, of course. As he progressed, he ended up with a team of experts around him. He spent months at the giant water tanks in Teddington, normally used for ship design, firing two-inch diameter wooden balls from a giant launcher, and Wallace progressed until he could present a viable proposition. This work also included the building of several large model dams by Dr. Norman Davy of the Building Research Laboratory, which were then blown up to determine the best possible point of detonation for the mines. Unfortunately, these tests weren't to everyone's convenience, as an Air Ministry report mentions that allotment holders were bewildered and annoyed when a mysterious and sudden onrush of water swept down, inundating their plots. With his data ready, Wallace set about building scaled-up versions of his weapon, which were launched from a Wellington bomber in late September 1942 off the very beach where Wallace had first got his inspiration, Chesil Beach. These trials proved successful, but ahead were months of considerable political wrangling, which included Wallace threatening to resign from his position at Vickers. An example of the high feelings involved came from a wing commander in the Directorate of Intelligence who wrote to the Parliamentary Secretary for the Ministry of Production, stating, I attach the notes, I promise, concerning B.N. Wallace and his invention. In my whole experience of aeronautical engineers and inventors, I have never come across one whom I consider more able and it seems a pity that such a man should be balked so consistently by a civil service mind. Excuse me for speaking rather plainly. The pressure built in favour of Wallace's proposal, and eventually Air Chief Marshal Portal ordered an astonished Linnell to approve the mission. Wallace was finally told by Linnell on February the 26, 1943, that the air staff have ordered me that you are to be given everything you want. A few days later, Linnell announced his intention to resign. The date for the mission was set for mid-May, when the reservoirs were likely to be full. Wallace had less than three months to complete all his work, a monumental task. No aircraft could yet deliver the weapon, which itself had not yet been built. There was going to be precious little time for sleep in the coming weeks. The RAF ordered 30 Lancasters to be modified to carry the weapon, and 150 of the mines, now called upkeep. Bomber Harris was far from impressed that he might be asked to divert a squadron from normal duties to take on the task. Whilst all this was going on, Guy Gibson was still on operations, and was on his last raid before he went on leave. He'd done 173 missions, and was attacking Stuttgart, whilst dreaming of relaxing in Cornwall, and snoozing in an armchair with his faithful Labrador beside him. His flight engineer brought him round, yelling, Port outwards going, sir! Gibson decided to press the attack on three engines from low level. An 8,000-pound bomb whistled past his wingtip from above, followed by a shower of incendiaries only a couple of hundred yards in front. 
the Lancaster was bounced and tossed about like a leaf, but he successfully pressed his attack and eventually made it back to England. The next morning he was rudely awakened from his sleep whilst dreaming of his holiday. His ears were still ringing, and his eyes felt red and sore. Is it important, Adge? he said sleepily. It's your posting, sir, came the sad reply. A short while later, he was in OC5 Group's office. How would you like the idea of doing one more trip? he was asked. A pretty important one, perhaps one of the most devastating of all time. I can't tell you any more now. Do you want to do it? Within two days, Gibson had formed a new squadron, called Squadron X, since the Air Ministry hadn't got round to allocating a number. They assembled at RAF Scampton, their new home. All the aircrew were experienced and expert at what they did. Like Gibson, they had at least two tours under their belts. Despite being in need of rest, they had all answered the call to arms once more. Secrecy was vital and very strictly enforced. Should wind of their attack get to the Germans, their targets would become saturated with defences. All they knew was that the attack would be partially over water and from very low level. Gibson briefed his flight commanders. We'd better limit the height to 150 feet, because we don't want the chaps going around the countryside hitting trees. Soon Gibson and Wallace met for the first time in an old country house. Barnes described the targets as certain objectives in enemy territory which are very vulnerable to air attack and which are themselves important military objectives. However, these need a vast amount of explosive placed very accurately to shift them or blow them out, you know what I mean, viaducts, uh, submarine patterns, big ships and so on. He went on to describe some of the problems Gibson would have to overcome. Low-level delivery, accurate dropping of a very large mine within a few yards, the danger of flak, balloons and flying low over still water at night. They soon met again at a special range in Kent to watch a test of the special weapon. Down came a lank at about 150 feet with this big mine slung underneath. Slow-motion cameras began whirring and the mine fell quite slowly. It seemed to hang in the air before it hit the water with a mighty splash and disintegrated into six or more parts. They all said it wouldn't work, Wallace was saying. They all said it was too big and too heavy, but I'll show them. We've got another one up in the hangars there, and we'll strengthen it this afternoon and have some more trials this evening. Again and again, upkeep failed to survive the drop. The impact force was just too much for the strength of the casing. Wallace knew that they weren't likely to get everything right at the first attempt, but others were less forgiving. At Bomber Command Headquarters in High Wycombe, the results of the first trials were treated with withering contempt rather than despair. 
Sir Arthur Bomber Harris's first reaction to the project was, tripe of the wildest description, not the smallest chance of working. Now that the first real test results had come in, he remarked, as I always thought, the weapon is balmy. Meanwhile, Gibson was still training his crews and trying to work out how to ensure the release height and position was accurate, essential for a successful result. An early form of radioaltimeter proved unusable over water. But then Ben Lockspeiser from the Ministry of Aircraft Production suggested using converging spotlights mounted in the belly and the nose of the Lancaster. The beams would come together when the aircraft was at the correct height. Gibson trialled the system, and it worked well, giving a high degree of accuracy. When the idea was shown to his crews, one said casually, I could have told you that. Last night I went to see a girl's strip tease, and there were two spotlights shining on her, and the idea crossed my mind. I was going to tell you. In fact, this was far from a new idea, since Captain Jenkins of the Royal Flying Corps had fitted a similar device to his BE-2 biplane during the First World War, and the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough were considering using the same idea to help Sunderland flying boat crews to land at night. The next problem to solve was when to release the mine. Again, a simple solution was found. A device was built that looked a bit like a coat hanger. Held to the eye, two prongs stuck out in front, and when the distance between them matched the position of the towers on the dams, it was time to release the mine. Some bomb aimers found this device hard to use in a buffeting Lancaster, so replaced it with a loop of string, which served the same purpose, and they found easier to use. The Lancasters that they would fly, known as Type 464s, were also being heavily modified. Most of the armour plate that protected the crew and the mid-upper turret was removed to save weight, and the conventional bomb bay doors were replaced by front and rear fairings to direct the airflow around the gaping hole that awaited the weapon. Upkeep was large and would hang well below the belly of the aircraft. In addition, the mine needed to be spun before delivery and a large hydraulic motor was fitted with a belt that would rotate the bomb and give it the needed backspin. This needed to be started at least 10 minutes before delivery and was controlled by the radio operator who also adjusted the speed ensuring that it was a steady 500 revs per minute. The spin not only increased the range of the weapon, but would hold it against the dam wall whilst it sank to the correct depth. Although German physicists in the early 1900s had quantified the physics of bouncing solid objects off water, when Barnes-Wallace turned his formidable intellect to the problem, he proved that backspin greatly extended the range of the bomb. This is known as the Magnus effect, whereby a spinning object effectively creates lift. The effect can be seen in the way a golf ball, football or tennis ball will curve in flight when spun. The effect increased the number of bounces that upkeep performed, thereby increasing its range. Not everything, though, was going well. 
test bombs continue to break up, and with only three weeks left, Wallace was still struggling to provide a reliable weapon. There was a problem with the mahogany casing that was fitted to protect the core of the weapon. It was barrel-shaped to help the mine from deviating left or right. In some tests, the core, shaped like a very large oil drum, carried on for a third of a mile after the outer casing had shattered. Wallace finally took the decision to do away with the outer casing entirely, but without it, the steel core was still breaking up. The mine needed to be dropped from a lower altitude. Wallace asked Gibson, Can you fly at 60 feet above the water? If you can't, the whole thing will have to be called off. Gibson knew how much of a risk it would be to operate a 30-ton aircraft with a wingspan of more than 100 feet that low at night, but he agreed to try. The spotlights were adjusted to the new height, and Gibson gave it a go. After a fairly hair-raising test, he rang Wallace and assured him that it could be done. New tests were conducted, and Gibson dropped an upkeep at 60 feet which bounced over the water for 600 yards, hitting the shore between the two screens that had been erected. With fewer training hours than the rest of the squadron, Gibson had delivered almost perfectly, and the weapon performed well. Barlow also dropped successfully at 60 feet and 220 miles an hour. At last, with barely a week to go, upkeep was finally working. However, Dropping from such a low altitude was far from safe. Les Monroe was ten feet too low. In daytime, the spotlight aldometer didn't work. When he released one, and the huge spray from the bomb hitting the water struck the belly of his aircraft, ripping it to pieces. Finally, a fully live upkeep was dropped by Shorty Longbottom, escorted by four Spitfires for security. This was the final test. Upkeep bounced seven times for about 800 yards at 730 metres and then sank. A moment later, the huge explosion from 30 feet below the surface sent a plume of water nearly 800 feet into the air. It was a complete success. It was great excitement and smiles on all faces except Gibson noted, from one of the senior officers of Bomber Command, who went up to Wallace. Gibson heard him say, It's okay, you seem to have got your weapon to work, but you will never knock down that rubble. It's completely impossible. Arms Wallace just smiled. With a couple of days to go, 617 Squadron carried out a full dress rehearsal. The next night, Gibson led another, which was a complete success. Everything ran smoothly and there was no hitch. That is, no hitch except that six out of the twelve aircraft were seriously damaged by the great columns of water sent up when their mines splashed in. They'd been flying slightly low. Most of the damage occurred around the tails of the aircraft. Elevators were smashed like plywood, Turrets were knocked in and fins bent. It was a miracle some of them got home. Gibson 
ever mindful of the need for a successful attack, told them that on the actual show it wouldn't matter so much that they were damaged, because once the mines had been dropped, the job would be done. The main thing was to get the mines onto the right spot. How the raid went, we'll find out in the next I can't wait to hear installment number four and what happened. <laughs> well, I, I think we all know uh, really that it was. <laughs> well, don't happened. tell me. I don't want but any spoilers. It's not. <laughs> it's not going to stop me from telling the story because it's just so brilliant. It really is. I love the uh, columns of water coming up and damaging the airplanes. Well, yeah. They, I mean, you think about it. They went up to uh, the, the bomb was so big. And uh, when it exploded, of course, it went up to 800 feet. But the actual splash of the first impact went up to around 100 feet. And uh, flying at only 60 feet, if they got slightly low, then it just clobbed with the bottom of the aircraft. So that was just a nightmare. Wow. Well, I can't wait to hear the uh, conclusion of this great retelling of the story. Yeah, thanks. It's going to be, you know... uh, extremes of emotion for me because mm-hmm. i know this story i love it so much and of course there's there's a, a marvelous finish to it but also a tragic one as well Ooh, what a twist all right well thank you nick as always for those great plain tales and uh, you know it and we all love it we Excellent. all love them well, it's, it's it's a pleasure all right except when we have a a show that comes right after another one and you don't have one ready. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Except for that. Although I've got a story in hand. One of our readers sent us in an entire plain tale, um, or one of our listeners, I should say, Uh um, written out for me to read. Excellent. And uh, I I thought, well, there's one I could possibly keep in standby because it's not my usual thing. I I like to write them myself. Uh But uh, I think I might... Um, just use that one as a, as a standby when we get a, a bit of a tight schedule. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, let's keep moving on and try to knock out some more feedback. What do you all think? Definitely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's, I think we left off with uh, five. Oh, can I just do a yes. shout out? Yes, please. Yes. Uh, I'd just like to mention we've got uh, the remarkable uh, Phil Frawley is uh, in our chat room on Facebook, joined a little while ago. Phil, great to have you on board. For those of you who don't know you, uh, Phil uh, is in the Guinness Book of Records uh, for uh, the oldest uh, serving fighter pilot to have uh, been operational. So um, Phil uh, was in the Royal Australian Air Force. And I knew him when I flew F-18s out there, which I'm trying to think, uh, close on 30 years ago. And uh, he was uh, flying then. He continued to fly um, in fighters until very recently when he retired and was given a certificate from the Guinness Book of Records uh, as the oldest uh, fighter pilot in uh, any service. Uh, so I, it's quite an achievement. Fighter pilot through all his life, many thousands of hours, fine chap, and a very, very marvelous 
Well, from the APG community, that, oh, that's not what I meant no. to play. <laughs> <laughs> this one right here. Hey, right wait, in, hold on. She's making a cameo. Right Go above. try again. <laughs> there we go. Hooray. Very nice. Congrats on the uh, Guinness Book of World Records, and uh, great to have you with us. Yeah, I think they finally had to use a pickle fork to get him out of the cockpit. Okay, that kind of ties in with the uh, problem with the Boeing 737, right? The pickle oh, fork. Oh, possibly, yeah. Yeah, uh, I love the way you do that. <laughs> okay. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's continue with uh, item nine, Trent. And he says, oh, you know what? Uh, I think Liz mentioned that maybe we should hold nine and 10 for another show when Steph, Dr. Doctor, is on the program because it deals with um, motion sickness, air sickness, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, she's she's a, a sick, sick expert. Yes. <laughs> she makes our stomachs turn. <laughs> it's not true, of course. All right. Uh, Luckily, she won't listen to this. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's a good yeah. thing. Uh, I don't, of course, Liz will probably tell her. Ah, uh, damn. Uh, yeah, I know. Can't Too get late. away with anything. Didn't think of that. Yeah. Okay. Item 11. Um, Morgan has an update for us. He says, sorry for the confusion about, okay, he was giving us an update on his aviation progress and he was talking about um, cr- commercial training and cross country. And we were talking about whether that was a requirement or not. And he said, sorry for the confusion about uh, what the 300 nautical mile X country, cross country that was in my last feedback. Captain Dana got it right. In Canada, we, cro- we require a 300 nautical mile as the crow flies cross country as a part of our commercial training. I just recently switched schools to start my multi IFR and I'm doing it all on a Beechcraft uh, BE 76 Duchess. Do you all have any tips about doing multi IFR? Um, I'm writing my NRAT, the IFR written tomorrow, September 30th. Okay. That was well, almost a couple of weeks ago and we'll send an update once done. So I'm sure he did well with that. If you ever find yourselves in Northern Canada, the Yukon, let me know and I'll take you out to get my favorite IPA. Again, that's Morgan and Dana. Do you have any tips about doing the multi-engine um, IFR or multi, I'm assuming that's what that means. Multi-engine IFR, multi-IFR. Um, as far as multi-IFR, I mean, you should already have your IFR rating when you start your multi-rating. So it's just really an add-on mm-hmm. unless you're combining the two of them. That's, that's really two separate ratings. So he may be doing that together. At least um, in the U S it is maybe in Canada. Maybe it's different. So different. Yeah, that that's correct. Um, I would just think that doing a multi IFR is it's it's a to find a multi engine airplane for that many hours to become proficient for IFR would be expensive in my book. That's why I'm kind of hesitant because uh, you can do all of it in single engine and have the same exact effect, except for the fact that you're building multi far more multi engine time, which would of course is always um, which is always a, a benefit trying to get hired in any airline. So uh, as far as uh, uh, doing that, I, I would certainly be ready for all your uh, 
you know, make sure your instructor lays out in advance what your uh, next uh, uh, instruction period will be. Make sure you're uh, fully versed and, and read up on and understand the I, you know the instrument flight rule environment and how to operate in the environment. Uh, an excellent tool to help you to do some advanced practice is certainly using some type of uh, uh, flight simulator that's available on your computer so you can understand procedures and actually gives you the ability to analyze your flight track and path. So, for example, uh, when you're trying to learn how to enter into holds, you know, you have teardrop, parallel, and direct entries. So um, as long as you understand that in theory and can apply that, um, that would make that a lot easier to understand than instead of if you're not prepared. So I think preparation is the biggest piece of uh, advice I can give you uh, to make your, your lessons uh, more effective. Also, uh, realize that it's going to be initially um, a, a completely different feeling, a completely different world that you're operating in. Um, and when you're wearing a, uh, a hood, which is what we use to do some most of the instrument training, um, it's, it's, it's helpful. But if you do get the opportunity, if your flight instructor feels comfortable, always go ahead and take the opportunity to go fly some actual instrument uh, uh, flying because it will make you more proficient. Um, and, you know, it gives you somebody that's there that is a, you know, the instructor that's there that, you know, hopefully will, will make you feel more confident. Obviously, you're going to have to establish your own minimums uh, and what you feel comfortable flying in. But, you know, one of the things that I, I, I found uh, in dealing with students in the past is, you know, everybody flies under the hood. You have to have a qualified pilot in the, in the other seat uh, while you're flying under the hood. But the first time they go out and fly in actual instrument conditions is after they get their ticket, after they become an instrument pilot. So uh, I, that's another piece of uh, advice I would give you is take the opportunity to get into the air and fly in actual conditions. Um, so that way you feel a lot more comfortable when you experience it, when you're on your own. And once you're certified, um, multi-engine is a complex airplane to fly. So um, if you're doing that together, uh, it gives you a little bit more of a stable platform uh, in, versus a single engine. Uh, however, you've got to realize in the multi-engine uh, instrument rating, you're probably going to have to do multi-engine, single-engine approaches. Uh, so you, you might have to be familiar with that. I don't know what the syllabus will include. Uh, the Duchess is a wonderful aircraft. I have plenty of time in it. Um, so that's about all I have. I'm, I'm not going to chew any more, any more time up on that, but, um, do keep your head up and, and know it's a lot of work to get that instrument rating, but it's, a, a, in my opinion, uh, the most important rating that you will, will, uh, in your young career obtain because it gives you a whole different, uh, understanding of how that, uh, the instrument flight rules works and the whole different, uh, uh, availability of the air traffic control system and uh, a whole new level of confidence in your flying abilities. And uh, in, from our chat room in the Facebook chat, chat room, actually, Alex Brodkey says, not sure about Canada, but in the U.S. Uh, Pilot Cafe, a website, P-I-L-O-T-C-A-F-E, has a great IFR reference guide uh, slash study guide. So that's always... Uh, and um, I was going to think... Uh, so, oh, um, we know some great folks that do a wonderful podcast called, and it reminds me of what Dana just said about, you know, learning about air traffic control, uh, which is a, a major part of instrument 
flight rules and living and and flying in that environment. Uh, Opposing bases podcast. You can learn a lot, uh, pick up a lot of uh, good tips by uh, listening to their show. Again, that's opposing bases podcast. So check that out. Yeah, and in, even even as a uh, even as a licensed uh, you know ATP airline po- actively flying. Uh, I listen to that podcast, and, and their their information is uh, very informative because it does give you the other side of of what we're dealing with every day. So it's awesome, great suggestion, Jeff. Yeah, um, uh, those guys do a great podcast. But when you meet them in person, uh, talk about duds. I know, right? <laughs> Completely. Yeah, and they're so young. Yeah. I'm just I mean, kidding. That's just out of school, for heaven's sake. <laughs> just by the way, just in case you don't understand my humor, I was I was joking there. RH and AG. Really great guys. What okay. Humor? Go ahead. I said what humor? Oh, yeah, what humor? <laughs> it's a different kind of humor. Yeah. Um it's a lot like British humor. Don't really get it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's why Nick's going laughing. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm, I'm just laughing because I've seen HR uh, get your P45 to fire you off the show. So I think that was very quick of her. <laughs> okay. Item 12. Patrick has a follow-up on the Transavia B737 attempting to take off from the taxiway at uh, Schiphol in um, the Netherlands. Amsterdam, to be exact. This is Patrick, a flying Dutchman from Silicon Valley, California. Thank you for a wonderful podcast. I listen to it every week. Thank you for the kind words. I have uh, feedback on a news item in Airline Pilot Guy 393, September 29, 2019. As news item, you had a great discussion on the incident with the uh, Transavia B737 that almost took off from a taxiway at Amsterdam's Schiphol. How? I'm, I, all of a sudden, I'm thinking I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Schiphol Schiphol is the way I always pronounced it. Okay. Uh, This is a strange mistake because weather and visibility were good. It is not the first time that a taxiway was mistaken for a runway. In February 2010, a KLM B737 took off from the other end of the same taxiway, unnoticed by the controllers and the pilots. The Dutch Transportation Safety Board made a report with some general recommendations. Apparently, that did not have enough of an effect to prevent similar incidents from happening again. So, why did the Dutch pilots make these mistakes? Could it be that complacency is playing a role in combination with somewhat lax safety culture? These pilots know Amsterdam Airport's diagram by heart because every second landing they make is at Schiphol. For KLM or Transavia pilots, every flight in their entire career is either to Amsterdam or from Amsterdam. That seems quite a different life than the more adventurous trips that you as Acme pilots lead. The repetitiveness and the long taxi times seem to affect the pilots. Check out this very popular YouTube cockpit video by another Transavia B737 driver. Quote, full flight from Schiphol runway 36 left to Rotterdam. And uh, he has the uh, YouTube link for us. Uh, it shows the lengthy taxi process process at Schiphol Airport from the captain's perspective. The pilots banter in Dutch about birds, about construction projects, and other non-flying related topics. At the 11.50 mark, they um, cross runway 36 center, 18 center, the same as the two incidents, and obviously do not carefully check that the runway is inactive. At the 14.15 mark, the co-pilot yawns loudly 
and then jokes that it is deliberate to get it on the cockpit voice recorder. <laughs> okay. Um, I wonder what you experts think. Is repetitiveness indeed a problem? Did they break the sterile cockpit rule and could affect uh, that could affect safety? Should I be worried flying the airlines of my fellow Dutchman? Greetings, Patrick. Yes, be worried. Be very worried. No. Um, so I'm not sure. Is the sterile cockpit rule an ICAO slash IASA rule? I know it's an FAA rule that we have, uh, but I'm not sure if it carries over to all the world's airlines. Is that What do you know about that, Nick? Anything? I don't believe it does. I don't believe our um, aviation administration have such a rule. Mm -hmm. But in my outfit, we uh, had a rule that um, we uh, had a sterile cockpit up to the top of climb. But this is a different thing. This is relates to communication uh, between the cabin and the cockpit. In other words, the cockpit communicating to the cockpit was restricted during that period. In mm -hmm. fact, during the takeoff and landing period, it, only one of the captain crew, the most senior, could speak to the pilots, and then she would only do so in a dire emergency to prevent them being distracted. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a different rule. Uh, your rule concerns the type of conversation you have on the cockpit below 10,000 feet, if I'm not mistaken, which says it should only be related to your work environment and what you're doing at the time. Right. Now, that's in the air. Uh, on the ground, I don't know if the same rule applies. It does. Is yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, we're, we're not so Well, anyway, I, I, I'm pretty sure that EASA doesn't have uh, exactly the same rule in its yeah. uh, thing. Um, now, I, I'm finding this a little hard to uh, equate the two uh, events. Um, let me first of all say that Taxing onto a strain onto the wrong runway in good visibility uh, is actually more likely to happen, in my opinion, than poor visibility. In poor visibility, you're very, very careful about what you're doing because you've got limited vision. You're very alert. You're taxiing slowly. You're looking for cues. You're having to read signposts, even on an airfield you're very familiar with. You're doing extra checks to make absolutely certain that you, because of the visibility is poor, that you've lined up on the correct runway. So it's obligatory in my old outfit to have the uh, localizer tuned and the display up so that as you swing onto the correct runway, you've confirmed that everything's in the center and that you're pointing down that runway and you physically read the, the uh, runway markings to make certain you know exactly where you are. Now, in good visibility, I think you're probably more likely to pay lip service a little to those sort of checks and to make absolutely certain that you're on the right piece of tarmac. What's more, these guys weren't at the threshold, which is very clearly marked. They believed they were turning on uh, some distance down where those markings wouldn't be apparent. So that may have given them the uh, mental picture that they were turning on to the runway at a, at a turn on rather than the beginning so they weren't expecting to see piano keys and a number and all the rest of the stuff uh, which may have aided their confusion or allowed them to have this uh, misperceived picture of the world that they were making fit what they were actually seeing exactly I think there's lots of psychological 
issues with perception that will will be could be quoted uh, that uh, led to this incident uh, and others. And personally, um, and was it daylight or night? I can't remember. Would the lighting have been the uh, the, the one that we talked about last episode yeah. uh, was during the early morning, like six something in the morning, I believe. Uh, so, so the lighting probably would early been on. early morning light. Yeah, but I, I I'm not quite so convinced that you would necessarily pick up on it. Uh, however, they obviously didn't. That's the, that's the kind of the point. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was through necessarily through misattention. I just think they led themselves down the garden. Yeah, I think it was more about uh, where they thought they were and they were seeing what they expected to see. Yeah, and uh, our behaviorists uh, have proper uh, proper terms for that, right? Uh, which have escaped me right now. Expectation bias or something like there that. There you go. Something. So in other words, you, you expect to see something, and even though the real world outside you doesn't quite fit what you're seeing, you make it fit. Um, because that's what you're expecting to see. Now, that is not to say that complacency is not a major problem in our world of flying. It is, and uh, you have to really be on top of it so that you don't let yourself fall into that trap. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, I agree 100%. Absolutely uh, essential. But I'm not convinced having a bit of light banter on the flight during a long taxiway is necessary indication of complacency. Correct. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, all right. Well, uh, Patrick. Oh, and as far as your concern about flying with your fellow Dutchmen, I don't think you need to worry about it. I think that uh, they're all very uh, professional pilots. They're, they're all mad in Holland, and probably so are you. Yeah. Oh, like mad Dutchman. At first, yeah. you meant I thought you meant angry mad. Oh, no, no, no. Crazy <laughs> mad. <laughs> gotcha. No, no, that's right. When we first started flying against the, uh, the, the uh, Dutch Air Force, we always said they were bloody mad. And uh, yeah, it's true. It is. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Item, item 13. Um, this is from Texas and Lashak. Of course, the obvious ref- reference to uh, the Babylon five program uh the anlashock were the rangers and of course texas rangers get it oh, texas rangers yeah, yeah okay actually i had no idea i had to look that up uh because um <laughs> he says i appear on patreon as the texas anlashock if you get the reference i will be extremely happy i was trying to make him happy he he wants to be anonymous by the way other than texas anlashock and uh i I did not, I, I've never watched, or maybe I've watched one or two episodes of Babylon 5, so I apologize. You're probably not happy with me. I had no idea what Anla Shock was. So, but I do now, thanks to Google. It's my friend. Um, so anyway, he says, hello, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Been listening for several years now. I thought I would finally send in a question that occurred to me on an Acme flight this past weekend. What are ACME's guidelines for crew regarding sensitive political matters when you have a plane full of opposing parties on the issue? In this case, the captain officially declared himself neutral on the issue, though he did say his wife was from New Orleans. Sorry, Dallas. I'm sure after the Cowboys lost the football game, the flight back was was much quieter. Anyway, enjoying the show. Wishing you all clear skies. So what I gathered, a little cryptic, I think, but um, and I think he purposely makes it such. Uh, but uh, you know, it's not really in this case a political thing. It's a 
it's a football a sports uh, uh, allegiance or alliance, uh, and apparently um, somebody was on the New Orleans Saints side of the of the spectrum, and somebody was on the Dallas side of the spectrum. So I don't know. Did you guys get any anything different from that than I did, or what? And does he mean that maybe the captain and the first officer were on were opposing parties or i assumed uh hey if you thought you had a lot of democrats on board uh would you yeah. make um any no. reference no <laughs> no i would not i definitely just like the show we stay away from politics but i mean if you were excuse me if you wanted to you could try and ride them up with your pa and then throw <laughs> them all off the airplane no. <laughs> again <laughs> Let me state that I would never do that. Yeah, I stay away from good man charged um, things as much as possible. And these days, yeah, I mean, yeah, on the sports front, you know, here in the United States, uh, the uh, team that I'm rooting for this evening, the New England Patriots, uh, is you know Who? they're a dynasty now, and a lot of people are very jealous of them. So. Uh, you know, I do get catch quite a bit of flack, um, and sometimes I'll even uh, when I because I do get up and I do talk to the passengers, um, and sometimes when people are getting on the aircraft with uh, New York Yankees uh, apparatuses like hats and t-shirts and or you know other teams, I'll I'll kind of crack a joke, but I always do it in a joking way, never in a serious way. But I'm I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm like you, Jeff. I don't talk about uh, certain items at work for sure. Uh, don't talk about politics. I've tried not to talk very much about um, leaving an activity because, um, you know, like we've talked about in the past, I, I like to keep everything positive and, and try to set the tone that way, uh, as well as, uh, you know, you know, talk about the other two items, uh, you know, sex and religion. So uh, try to stay neutral. Yeah. I agree. All right. Thank, thank you, Texas and Lashok. Um, on a couple of episodes ago, uh, let's see, this is from Richard, item 14. Just heard your latest podcast and the item about the bushfires in Australia during August. I was at a place called Crescent Head on the north coast of New South Wales when a huge fire broke out a few miles away from the town. It burned for a few days and didn't appear to be under control by the volunteer rural bush fire people. There were helicopters with buckets, but they didn't appear to be that successful. Then about midday on the fourth day of the fire, the 737 appeared, which I took a few photos of. If you look closely at the photo with the Norfolk pine in the foreground, you will see a sea eagle in its nest. Due to foreshortening of the telephoto lens, it appears to be close to the 737, but it was quite safe. Yeah, in fact, it would look like it was a couple of ridge lines uh, closer to the photographer than uh, where the airplane was dropping fire retardant. Um, beautiful picture, though. Um, so he says, I've, I've attached a few photos of the 737 and helicopters as well as the fire itself. Keep up the great work. Regards, Richard Glidden private pilot. And again, he's, uh, from Australia and, uh, love that top picture. Don't you guys? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. My, my guess is that the big aircraft can cover a, a large area, but, uh, the helicopters can uh, dip 
and uh, carry water much more frequently, and they can sort of hit spots very mm -hmm. accurately. So uh, I guess they almost perform a different function. Uh, and no doubt the helicopter guys are in touch with the firefighters on the ground to help them out. Perhaps uh, there, there's a safety uh, net just in case uh, they need to be uh, given protection or to have a uh, path created to let them get out of a hot spot. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I really do think they probably work in harmony rather than one replacing the other. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, you look at what helicopters are dropping, they're dropping water. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, obviously it's a different color, uh, coming out of the 37. So I imagine that some type of flame, uh, retardant or, and, or, um, chemical that they're spraying yeah. to help, uh, reduce the, or it's more effective than the water is really I'm trying. In other words, like comparing halon fire extinguisher to a water fire extinguisher, halon is going to be more effective at smothering the fire with water. We'll put some of it out, but, uh. The halon's more effective. Yeah, I think uh, Nick makes the you know made a good point about the fact that it's kind of a part, pro probably all part of a strategy. You know, one's better at yeah. attacking this kind of aspect of the fire, and one's better at uh, a different. Agreed. Okay. Uh, thanks, Richard, for the photos. Um, Robert from Marietta writes in. Off and running, laugh out loud. What's the crew's opinion on these antics? And he sent us a uh, link to a lifehacker.com article about first-class bathrooms on flights. And it starts off by saying, Last week, an Alaska Airlines flight made an emergency landing because of, of a passenger's threats, apparently uttered out of frustration over an especially long restroom line. Uh, by making seven people wait here to use the bathroom while the whole bathroom up there is empty, it's wrong, he said. I guess there was a video of this. And uh, the uh, person that wrote the article says, I too have experienced being shamed out of using the first class cabin restroom and directed back to a line of people waiting for the cramped bathroom and economy seating, though I've never resorted to threats or violence. But why can't we use these restrooms? Is it just because I didn't buy a first class ticket? Yep. That's exactly why. <laughs> anyway, yep. uh, it goes on to say the good news is that most, if not all, major U.S. airlines don't explicitly restrict restrooms by cabin class. Below, you'll find several of their policies, and he he uh, has uh, Alaska's and Delta's and JetBlue and United and what their restrictions or lack of restrictions are. And he said, of course, there are exceptions if an attendant specifically asks that you use a restroom in a given class. You should absolutely follow their directions, regardless of whether it's written down in any policy, uh, because you would be refusing to comply with a crew member's directions, which could be considered a federal violation. So, you know, uh, I don't know really what else to say about using the lavatory in a different class of service than you have purchased a ticket? I think the answer is to um, discreetly ask if it would be okay since uh, you have a, uh, you know, important reason for needing to use the restroom right now. An immediate now. reason. <laughs> and uh, um, these ones appear to be free. Would they mind on this occasion? So mm -hmm. just be polite and ask. And then uh, the cabin crew will normally, I would say, uh, well, be fine and let you go yeah uh but if there's uh if there's queues enough in uh if first class 
then they're probably going to say, no, sorry, you can't. Because if you're going to pay a huge amount of money to have all the facilities that go with a, uh, a nice seat, etc., and a bar and great food and etc., and we know how expensive that can be, you expect to be able to have fairly frequent and easy access to the facilities. If you're going to pay the bottom dollar and be down the back, just as I do, then I expect to have to queue for the loo. Yeah. Plan ahead yeah. if you can. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Dana. I was, yeah, that's a good, good point, Jeff. Uh, what I was going to say is that I think there's a very big difference between domestic and international flying. Uh, domestic flying, uh, it tends to be a little more lax. Uh, when it comes to that, I, I've observed uh, some flight attendants that are very much uh, uh, not allowing anybody, and they've even made PAs over the over the uh, system. I've heard that in the past. Very few, but I've heard it where the first-class laboratory, first-class is uh, restricted for first-class passengers, um, but not so much. And, you know, it, it, unless they're, that's their pet peeve, one would say, uh, it tends not to be an issue. But on the international class, it's completely separate really separate uh, cabin uh, and uh, it tends to be, I think, more enforced than it would on domestic flying. Just my opinion on that. Thanks, Robert, for the article. If you want to read the whole thing, we'll put that on the uh, show notes. Uh, Deanna uh, writes in, uh, got to meet Deanna for the first time in uh, Oshkosh. And she says, hi, APG crew. I think the last time I sent feedback was in March and I was struggling with motion sickness. Oh, this is another motion sickness thing. Oh, um, should we leave this for Steph? Well, she's the sick expert. I yes. think, I don't know if she's specifically, um, she's just mentioning it. I don't think that that's really the, the crux okay. of what she's writing about. Yeah, because she goes on something else with yeah. that. So, yeah, I would, I'd read it. Um, so, I got about six hours under my belt, then took a break because of the motion sickness and work schedule. I was also struggling with confidence and proficiency. I think I told you in my feedback, it just... Uh, didn't seem intuitive to me. I decided to resume training in late June. My previous CFI had quit, not because of me, she puts in parentheses. The school paired me with a new CFI, literally new. I was one of his first students. He's a great fit for me because he seems to like teaching and he's infinitely patient. He's very good about not pressuring me too much at first, but then getting more strict and expecting more from me as I progress. He wants to eventually work for Acme, so Captains Jeff and Dana may see him one day if I don't drive him to insanity before that. I now have a total of 19 hours, 13 if you don't count the time before I took a break, which I don't because it makes me feel better. <laughs> I still want to compare myself to everyone else. I read that the average time to solo is 15, 15 hours. I feel nowhere near ready, so I keep having to tell myself average is just an average, and it's okay to take longer. I think about how much better I am than I was 50, at 15 hours or even five hours ago. Um, I remember the first time I was at the controls, I couldn't even taxi in a straight line. Now that's easy. At first, I would get so fixated on my instruments, the first instructor had to cover them up and force me to look outside. That's, that's pretty typical, actually. Um, now I'm able to look outside and use the sight picture and other visual cues instead of trying to be an instrument pilot. I did do an hour of training under the foggles and I did very well. If I do say so myself at first, I couldn't maintain heading and altitude to save my life. Now I can, 
My landings need some work. I feel like I can become a private pilot. Heck, I might even be ready to solo before my instructor becomes a captain at Acme. <laughs> wow. She's setting out a long time frame here. I love that the weather is finally cooler. I've been flying out of Kilo uh, Bravo Uniform Yankee, which is Burlington, uh, North Carolina, which is near Elon. Captain Jeff knows where that is. That's where my daughter Natalie just uh, went to school and graduated. I'm not a morning person, so I've been flying in the afternoons when temps were in the upper 80s and 90s. Hmm, that might be part of the motion sickness thing. Last week, uh, it was going to be 96 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 35.5 Celsius to Captain Nick. So I texted my instructor to see if maybe he had an earlier slot. He suggested 7 a.m. I cried a little inside, but agreed. <laughs> it was such a great experience flying in cool weather. I think it was 65 degrees Fahrenheit, 18C. It was so smooth, and we climbed like a bat out of Hades. I'm looking forward to training this fall as the weather cools. Thank you for taking my feedback. Deanna Tickle. Uh, good stuff in there, Deanna. You know, one of the things that really just sticks right out to me in this is that it seems that the training got a little bit better and uh, it, she started performing a little bit better with her new instructor. And we say that a lot on this show. And I think you would agree, Dana, that if you're struggling a little bit, it might not be a bad idea to switch instructors and their styles may kind of jive with your learning style better. And, uh, that, that can definitely help. I, I believe I'm a strong proponent of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess we can just really encourage you, Deanna, to keep, just keep going at it, which I think it sounds to me like your attitude is that, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm not going to let the fact that I think maybe that I'm progressing a little bit more slowly than other people are or do or have in the past. I don't think that that should um, be something that uh, discourages you. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeff. I mean, it, it, we all interact with people differently. You can have, a, a, as we were talking about earlier, you know, you have uh, people that are working on the ramp that are, getting into a fisticuff because, well, they probably had some, some difference between, between them, or you can have uh, somebody they get along with really well and work in, work in, in symphony with. So that's the type of person you want to, want to have as a flight instructor that's going to take uh, your interests at heart and uh, you take your motivation and work the best, best with it, and uh, your final product will be much better because of it. Absolutely. Anything to add to that, Nick? Yeah, Sorry, yeah. no, uh, not really uh, my field. Tell the truth, um, I don't really. Uh, know well, you much were an about you this. were an instructor at uh, at least once yeah, but, in your career. Uh, I think a, a, a military instructor gets uh, people who are uh, on a proper course, and uh, it's a bit like a sausage machine. Everyone's terribly motivated, etc. It's a slightly mm -hmm. different world in the Pacific. Well, you know, you have in the civil world, you, I think you have more opportunity for choice than you do in the military. Yes, absolutely. You do. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, and, yeah. you know, when, when I say motivations, I also mean that the flight instructor's motivations as well. I mean, if they're there to teach and, and actually help you to learn versus somebody just there to, to bore holes in the sky to build up the time to get, get out the door. So there, there are different levels of instruction, of course. 
Yep. Hey, great job, Deanna. Keep on going. All right. She's in the chat room, by the way. Oh, she is. Hey, Deanna. Yeah. Yes, she is persistent. That's good. That's a good quality to have as a pilot or for a human. <laughs> Persistence. Um, okay. And lots of good advice from others in the chat room as well. David uh, Ogden is giving some great advice. And uh, Sam Glassy as well. So, man. If you're listening to this audio only podcast, if you get a chance every now and then uh, following us on Facebook and Twitter, we'll tweet out and put a post out on Facebook when we're doing the show live. And you really owe it to yourself to get to know this wonderful community that we have that uh, show up every now and then while we're recording live and have a a great conversation going on. And now that we're on uh, more than one platform, you even have more opportunity. So we're now both on YouTube and Facebook. So this show is the uh, inaugural Facebook live uh, streaming event. Hope everybody is enjoying it over there. And uh, let's go to our final, unless I've skipped something other than the two that we purposely skipped for uh, stuff. Uh, this one's sent in by somebody named Dana. And uh, it's, a, it's a good one. I saw this a, a, a little <laughs> while ago. Uh, so um, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's still a great story. <laughs> Um, it's from buzznick.com. Uh, huh. Does that have anything to do with you, Nick? Buzz, Nick? Nick has um, a buzz. Oh, yours is Nick has I, a buzz. No, I don't buzz very often. <laughs> okay. Uh, this guy writing the article says, I've always dreamed of going to Alaska and taking an Alaska cruise while stopping to fish for salmon and other native fish. Alaska is the last frontier. A lot of it's untouched and there are homesteads throughout the wilderness where people live off the land and their surroundings. If I didn't have kids, I would try to jump on this as soon as possible. But with kids, that adds a whole other element. Well, recently a man chartered a pilot so he could go on a a private fly-in fishing excursion in the wilderness. But they forgot one important thing once the plane had landed. They left a cooler and bait inside the plane. Considering the many wild animals in Alaska, this should be the first thing you make sure to take with you. But this pilot left his plane and came back to see that a bear had shredded his plane to pieces. You won't believe what he does about it. Check out the pictures below. And again, you'll have to look at the show notes to see these pictures. So it first starts (laughs) with um, a picture of the damage that the bear did to the back, uh, the tail of the plane and the back fuselage. Uh, rear fuselage of the airplane apparently because they had food inside this thing the bear wanted to get it and he apparently got it and it tore apart almost every inch of the plane um, looking for the cooler and the bait and fortunately the guy had duct tape and <laughs> he takes duct tape and basically reskins the entire most of the fuselage aft of the front part of the cockpit all the way back to the tail and it is just actually looks pretty good the, the it's a neat job isn't it yeah the final photos are i'm impressed i mean it took uh three cases of duct tape actually i wonder how much that stuff weighs in comparison with doped canvas but uh probably i don't know that's a good question oh well, uh yeah there's three yeah, yeah. cases of duct tape and a large supply of sheet plastic. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and they were able to repair it enough to get that thing to fly out of there and then get it uh, properly repaired, I hope, anyway. <laughs> well, and, and, and interesting, they fl- it actually flew the uh, 
flew the, all the product in so they get the airplane uh, airborne again. I think it's a fabric covered airplane. I don't think it's yeah. metal. No, I don't think and, it is. No. And, uh, you know, the one question to my, that came to mind for me is, did they have a ferry permit? <laughs> because, I mean, obviously the aircraft was highly modified at that point. It's not in its original structural form. I don't know if they would need one or not. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, this is Alaska. I mean, anything goes over there. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is bush, bush flying. <laughs> it's an amazing job though they did yeah. that and i saw this i yeah. said i i gotta i gotta fool this on so maybe we can put this out in the show notes i mean it's, that it's bear a- really had a go didn't it? it it's it's deflated both tires <laughs> i mean did he think they were keeping fish in the tires <laughs> he couldn't figure out where that where that was coming from <laughs> maybe it's in those little black rubber things <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, it's crazy yeah, great article. So uh, everybody check that out. Uh, that'll be in the show notes as well. Thanks for sending that in, Dana. Well, uh, actually, it might be my first actual feedback I've ever submitted. Yeah. Oh, yay. That deserves a... Or does it deserve more of a... <laughs> or both? <laughs> How about a... Wow. Oh, yeah. That's definitely uh, right there. Wow. Brilliant. Okay. With that, we're going to go ahead and uh, close shop on this episode. And uh, let's see. Don't forget that we have a great website uh, that you can view from your desktop, from your laptop, from your tablet or smartphone. And uh, I put um, a link uh, now in the show notes that uh, kind of instructs you on how you can kind of appify. I think that's the term that Steph uh, used to uh, appify the uh, website on your uh, smartphone or whatever if you'd like. You don't have to. You can just bookmark it in whatever browser you use on your phone. But anyway, out on the website, you can learn about the crew, uh, the community, which is the best part of all of this. Um, Almost the best part is the uh, Plain Tales. It has a separate page, and you can actually subscribe to Plain Tales as a separate podcast in your podcast listening software and uh, merchandise and the calendar that we talk about all the time. Make sure you check that out. Um, And uh, the coffee fund, how you can become a member of that if you'd like and uh, much, much more. So again, please check out airlinepilotguy.com. We're also on the social meds. And uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, at, uh, if you use the handle at APG crew, and on Facebook, and well, many of you have already found us on Facebook because you're there in the chat room and watching the Facebook feed. But uh, we're the Airline Pilot Guy uh, on Facebook, so just search for that and you'll find us. Yes, and we're also on Slack. And Hello? Okay, hey man, it's time. Come out. Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? No. I mean, yes, I do mind. Come over here. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel. 
and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. And a big shout-out to our producer in Toronto, Liz Piper. That's Yay! not the right button again. There we go. Hi, Liz, right down the road. Uh, we couldn't do it without her. Or if we, well, we could, but we just look really, really stupid. I'm kind, I'm kind of missing well, her today. More stupid than we currently do. Yes, even more so, believe it or not. <laughs> that would take some doing. <laughs> All Speaking right. of Slack, I tried to set up a meetup this, uh, up here in Toronto, but I haven't got any responses. Oh, that's too bad. That's because that's Liz wasn't available and nobody wanted uh, to see me. They all want to see They Liz. just wanted to see the star, the talent. <laughs> Liz. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought about me. All right. And uh, let's see. What else? Thanks again, everybody, for listening to us on your listening wherever you listen to podcasts and reviewing the show and all that stuff we really do appreciate you and we look forward to being with you again next week on the next episode and until then wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds take care and god bless bye everybody go pets bye bye yeah he's up in the sky Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how guy